0: The FNRAD Snowboard Podcast is presented by Vans. Before I start the last episode of Season 7, I need to put in a trigger warning. George Pappas and I talk about hard drugs, attempted murder, and suicide. Please be in the right headspace before you listen. And if you or your loved ones need help with suicidal thoughts or feelings, the Canadian Suicide Hotline is one 833 Four five six four five six six, and the U.S. Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-TALK 1-800-273-8255
1: Hey everyone, this is George. Before you guys listen to this story, I just want to be upfront and clear and let you know that I tried to kill another human being and myself and it's forever changed me. take full responsibility for it. And believe me, I understand the gravity of doing something like this. I spend every day trying to make amends for the harm I've caused, including this. I don't want anyone to think that it's cool or okay or in no way am I trying to glorify it. I've tried to compress 50 years of living and snowboarding and skating into this two hours. But I want to make sure to express my responsibility for all my actions. And I work one day at a time to make amends so if you're still suffering in your addiction or self-destructive behaviors reach out to someone in 12 steps or ask for help somewhere or somehow it's never too late to turn it all around and I hope that after listening to this story that you agree with me I'm not glossing over any action especially ones that cause harm to others I could speak for hours and hours on this alone but we only have limited time and with the time that we have left enjoy the ride
0: Season 7 of Rad is sponsored by Wired Snowboards, The Boardroom Snowboard Shop, Anon Optics, Time Bomb Trading, and Tribute Board Shop in Nelson, B.C. Support also comes from Mount Seymour, Grouse Mountain, New Green Superfood Drink, Volcom Outerwear, and Intuition Heat-Moldable Bootliners. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. The final guest of Season 7 is George Pappas, Jr., Way back in the early 90s, my best friend Chris bought a Mistral George Pappas from Skaters Pro in Sudbury, Ontario, and I called it the celery stock to tease him from the weird shape on the nose and tail. Eventually, I bought that board from Chris, and it rode really good. Before he was on Mistral, George Pappas was the original team rider for Kemper Snowboards, and way before that, he was a competitive skateboarder in the late 70s. George's life includes some incredible highs, and one unbelievable low. Strap in for a crazy ride. I'm extremely proud and stoked to bring you this interview with George Pappas.
1: Capper was the first year that I did it. Yeah. And no, I didn't work at all. None. I I was, no. Pro snowboarder, I made 250 bucks a month. Okay. Jamie bought my season pass. He paid all my travel expenses. Yeah. Gave me a victory schedule.
0: What's a victory schedule?
1: Victory schedules was he matched my winnings every time I, if I won five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, and he would match my winnings. And he gave me a uh, photo incentives. Um, I don't know specifically how much. I, say. I think a full page photo in the magazine was worth a thousand bucks. Yeah, like the cover shot yeah. was worth X amount. Ten like, grand or
0: something, probably five uh, grand. Not that mu- Not
1: mu- that much yeah. back then. Sure, you know, sure, maybe sure. It's my I
0: decided to reach out to George after Jamie Salter's interview. I knew he'd gone to prison for 13 years about five years ago, so I wasn't even sure if I could get in touch with him. Long story short, his brother Chris gave me his phone number. Fifteen minutes I went from, I wonder if I can get in touch with you, to being on the phone with you. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Holy shit. And then the story you told me about Jamie Salter, not only did you solidify that what he was saying was, was true. Yep. That the story was way, way more a wild of a ride than I could have ever imagined. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it so much. I got off the phone with you, and I was like, "That's that's truth is better than fiction." Like this is your yeah. life is so sick. So, <laughs> Thanks, yeah, yeah. And and here I am in uh, in Boulder and, and in your new house. So you you just bought yeah. this thing with a partner, and you own a house.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can't believe I'm still pinching myself. Yeah, that's dope. I can't fucking believe it. Yeah. Seven and a half months out of prison, and I've got a admittedly a crack shack, but it's in Boulder. It's a half a million dollars. This is sick, dude. So, yeah. And I'm partnering it and I own it. Yeah. Yeah, I do wood floors for a living. Yeah. And, uh, and, we're gonna build an accessory dwelling unit, a mother-in-law apartment on the back. Perfect. Yeah, you know, um, I've never done something like this, and uh, it's it scares the hell out of me. Man. Yeah, I'm terrified. But yeah, uh, you got to walk through my fear and, and do this.
0: Yeah, you know, at this point in your life, you're probably the healthiest that you've ever been.
1: Um, mentally and emotionally, absolutely. Uh-huh. Physically, it's it's uh, it's a challenge, man. Yeah, <laughs> I beat the shit out of myself hardcore my whole life but yeah but i'm getting it back you know i can do the work yeah and uh yeah today uh so i've been i've been in recovery for five years it my my thinking has changed and everything has changed um i was at a a 12-step meeting today and they read the reading of the day was uh it was suppose your higher power gave you a brand new car and a new house and all your wildest dreams quadrupled your salary uh, we I, I could pull it up on my phone and read it to you right now. Um, and so they read this reading, you know the the uh they call it the just for today. That's the reading that they read at the beginning of the meeting, and then we then we share on that. And as they're reading this, they say, you know, what would you do with that money? Did you think that you didn't deserve it, or or um you know that that you were a fraud and um that you had to earn this money? And I and I sat there and thought about it, and and when I shared in the meeting, what I said was. I said, you know what, uh, my higher power, which, which to me is the, um, which is love and the power of attraction. Um, my higher power wants me to, um, to succeed. And my higher power gives me so many opportunities in my life. Um, and my whole life, me, my, me, George, this ego that I have has always felt that I don't deserve this. And I've always just been terrified that I'm not going to be able to perform and um, here I am, the opportunity I have with this house is f- fucking unbelievable. It, it doesn't happen. But someone offered me to, hey, man, I'll put you on the deed of this house if you do the sweat equity and do it. Just a guy that I met a few months ago. Wow. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm doing the thing. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's fucking scary, man. That's
0: a pretty deep coincidence. Do they know that you just got this house?
1: Um, no, they didn't. As a matter of fact, I had to recruit, I had to recruit my sponsor and a couple other guys to come move this couch that you're sitting on. Right That's now. so sick, dude. Yeah. My sister found a couch on Craigslist today and uh, yeah. she gave me the number to the people that were selling it. And it turns out that they're right across the fucking street.
0: <laughs> That's so dope. It's amazing. So I,
1: so I brought a few guys over. We loaded the couch over here. This is my first piece of furniture. Yeah. Except for this one that came with the house.
0: Oh, nice. So. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. I think because like yeah. what was it like for you growing up as a kid? You you've got a sister and a younger brother? So
1: I got five
0: older sisters. Five older sisters. Five holy older shit. brothers.
1: I'm the youngest of 11. No fucking way. Oh my god.
0: <laughs> and did you guys grow up in Colorado or? So we
1: grew up right here in Boulder, just on the other side of town.
0: What's the spread? We'll just see him. So my
1: mom had my mom had 11 kids before the age of 30. She had her first kid when she was 17, so she had 11 kids and basically 12 years. Yeah. My oldest sister is 12 years older than I am. So my mom was barefoot and pregnant all the way to age 30 and then had 11 kids. And Holy She's shit. still alive. That's nuts. Barely hanging on. Yeah, she's the same.
0: Sadly, shortly after we recorded this, George's mom, Charlene Rosalie Pappas, passed away on January 23rd, 2022, following a lifetime of giving to her family, church, and community. In 1952, she'd married George Pappas and immediately started a family with 11 kids, George Jr. being the youngest, born just before her 31st birthday. When asked how she could love so many children, she replied, quote, Love doesn't divide, it multiplies. 11 kids. And was there a dad in the picture as well? Yeah,
1: dad was dad was involved. He passed away when I was in prison. Oh
0: uh, wow, sorry to hear that, dude. Yeah,
1: it was pretty. It was you know, it is what it is. We had time to prepare for it. It wasn't too sudden, but yeah. But still, you know, it's uh, it's just what it is.
0: So your bi- your big family, how do you guys get involved in skateboarding? Like-
1: so in fifth grade is when it came out with urethane wheels. Okay, it was probably. I think like 74, 75. I started skating right then. The school that I went to, the the playground was also the parking lot for the church. So they would let us bring our skateboards and we could ride our skateboards at recess. Sick. And yeah, so that's when I started skating.
0: What's the skate scene like in the 70s? I mean, you're in school, you're skating in the parking lot.
1: Yeah, so it was like old school bonsai boards with Cadillac open bearing wheels and Excalibur trucks, which are. It probably sounds like a foreign language to a lot of of the kids listening to this, but... Uh, you know, open bearing wheels were, you know, you put ball bearings in the wheels screwed it down like on a roller skate. Yeah. We bought our boards at Kmart there was no skateboard <laughs> shop in town. We'd go to Kmart and, yeah. and it was just like, we're kids in a candy store and, um, just me and a couple buddies of mine were just, were so into it and skating all the time. Um, there was a skateboard contest up on the hill in in Boulder and I went up there just by pure luck um, got second place in the slalom. Oh, sick contest! So, uh, I run a set of wheels, uh, Kryptonics Hot Pink's. Um, nice. Then I tried out for the skateboard team uh, at the local shop, and I made the team. And I started skating. It and,
0: can't be just luck. Then you had enough skill to get on the team, and you had enough skill to get second at the thing.
1: Well, you know, it, luck is the intersection of hard work and opportunity.
2: That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So,
1: so yeah, and and hard work for me was all was all totally fun play yeah Right. I, I hear hard work with skateboarding and i'm like <laughs> hell no it was fucking fun playing yeah and i did a lot of it uh um, and opportunity was i was at the right place at the right time four of the guys fell i made it through the course sick and i won a set of wheels and i was fucking <laughs> I, you know i was like hell yeah second place yeah was
0: stoked what was the shop that sponsored you
1: i got sponsored by the sidewalk surf shop skateboard team here in Boulder. There were. This was like right when the Bull, downtown Boulder Mall was just being built. Yeah, and there was a skateboard shop downtown, and they had tryouts for the team, and so we sick. went down there, and and um, I did the tryouts, and it was like I could do tic tacs and a little bit of walk the dog. And yeah, I could yeah, do like a three sixty. Like,
0: yeah, you're, man, you're on the team, Paddles. <laughs> Hell yeah, I love
1: it. Yeah, so when I tried out for the sidewalk surf shop team, I got on the team, and uh, it was me a kid I grew up with uh, from my elementary school, Mike Crossan and uh, Pernak, who was into slalom and this kid named Shane Anholm, and And, uh, I met Shane. He's <toolkit floor noise> like, dude, do you smoke? And I'm like, yeah, I smoke. <laughs> we were fucking thick as thieves, bro. We went back to his house and then he introduced me to the Rolling Stones. Wow. He introduced Damn. me to Led Zeppelin. too. Damn. And let it bleed. It changed my fucking life. And Shane was, uh, Original OG punk rock skater. Man, he was the real deal at age 13. Dude already had tattoos. We ended up here in the same neighborhood that we're in, Martin Acres in Boulder. I think the statute of limitations is is up, but one night we might have found ourselves in a stolen van from a uh, boy's home that was in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly how it happened. I think Shane was driving. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we rode with him and uh, some of the hardcore skaters from Denver. We went and rode the Cherry Creek full pipe before they filled it with tar. We rode the Health Bowl in Denver. There are very few of you skaters from back in the day know the Health Bowl was just a, a, a health club that was at Sheridan and US 36. That was no longer. And we, with good vert, we went and skated that. And, and uh, Shane didn't give a shit about competition. He didn't give a shit about freestyle or slalom or <laughs> anything like that. He was just fucking hardcore skater. And the dude is the real deal. He ended up doing some time. He was the ponytail bandit. He robbed like, I don't know, 27 banks in LA. Come on. That's
0: <laughs> too fucking awesome.
1: Wound up. Penthouse Magazine did a, an article on him in, uh, I think it was the January 2017 issue or something like that. I haven't, I haven't read it. Shane told me about it. Dude wrote a letter to the judge uh, on my behalf when I was getting sentenced. And I'm firmly convinced that uh, it helped me to get a less. I only got 13 years. Could have got a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I had some great friends that wrote letters for me. Yeah, Shane's just the real deal, man. I got to give him props. He was a instrumental in my formative years. He's just unreal. He's just the most authentic skater that, you know, should be a picture of Shane at home, you know, next to Jay Adams, when you open up the dictionary and Rad. and, and look at the skateboard. He didn't give a fuck about anything. You know, however, he gives me respect. Yeah. Also, and that makes me respect him even more. The guy's just a phenomenal person. And he's now a tattoo historian. He's written a book called The Tattoo Machine Discourse. He's been on several podcasts, and the dude has has helped me out since I got out of prison. Um, he's he's just been one of the most solid Guys in my life, and I fucking love them. Shane and
3: home. So I was skating right there, and then there was George. See, I'm such a nut that I think he's as hip as me. So I didn't know that I was turning him on to this shit because probably George didn't want me to know that he didn't know. But then we got on that team. Yeah, I surf skated. I, I entered freestyle competitions, but I I, I watched George... I wasn't paying attention, I guess, because he really excelled in slalom skating. I mean, I watched him. One day we were on these little teams, and the next thing you know, he's on Sims. And then the next thing you know, he's constantly winning. And, like, George, like, I knew this girl that would bone us. And so I took him up there with me. And the first time I slept with her, and the second time I was like, George, have her. And he jumped, and it was like... That kind of bonded us for the rest of our life. I know it's weird, but it's, it's kid shit. It's 12, and we were 12 and 13, I think, at the time. Yeah, his family was very normal, mine was insane. And and then the only normality I had was in, like, group homes. So when I'd get thrown in the group home, then I'd get out, I'd be with my mom and skate. But George had this big family, Chris is his brother. So I would see George intermittently, as, like, I ended up on the streets from the time I was, like, 13 or 14 on. And George, I think, he went to high school, I I, I guess. So one time I saw him, I was in court, and I was fighting all these pharmacy robberies. And my crime partner is another famous snowboarder, but I'm not going to name him. When we're off the air, I'll tell you who it is. But I was in court, and George was in there. I couldn't believe it. And his mom was there, and his mom was just a sweetheart, wonderful woman. Um, Anyway, so we would stay in touch a little bit. Because I was busy in punk rock and, and then I went to prison and I remember seeing him on the cover of a snowboard magazine while I was in there. And I was like, what the? F-? But it didn't surprise me. Sometime he got a hold of me, but he was he was messed up. See, George's only problem, like many of us, was drugs. So when when this happened with the case, his sister called me. And I knew at his age, the crime that he committed, because, you know, think about it. OK, he's going to kill himself. It wasn't about killing her. It's about killing both of them. I know that people demonize it and it was a horrible thing that happened. And but George was on, on drugs. He was on drugs. I mean, he was he was he, that was George's bottom. And unfortunately, George's bottom was witnessed by all of us. Some of us have bottoms that nobody sees. And and so, yeah, his sister called and I think I helped him with his bail. But then I wrote the judge. I was scared because George is like 50, I think. I think about that in my life because I spent so much time in prison and I've been out a long time now and God bless and, and, you know, but I think about at my age, I couldn't get a 13 year sentence or a 15 year. I don't have it left in me, you know, so when George was facing that, that's what I thought about. So I wrote the judge and I told the judge that I'd known him my whole life and that he was an Excellent athlete. If if you didn't throw him away for good, if he was on drugs, and I believe that if we just did enough time to get his head straight, that we would see him better. And he did it. There's good things in store for George. There's good things. I I really believe that because I see it's not our our victories. Like everybody counts all these guys. Oh, they won this medal. They did this. They did this in skating. What whatever. But it's our defeats that define us and how we get back up from our defeats. And that's what we're witnessing now with George. You know, I talked to him yesterday and he's getting off parole because so he can go to Argentina and skate and the World Cup or whatever. And I told him that when I got off parole, the day I got parole, I went and got heroin and got loaded. And then it was back to trouble again because I wasn't being tested. So I was scared, and I was like, George, listen to me now. I just want to tell you. And he said, Shane, I've been off testing for four months. And then I just thought, okay, so he's good, man. He's got it. He's got it. See, we only keep what we give away. And George has a lot to give us all. It isn't the help we get. It's the help we give. It's the way I've stayed out of prison 30 years. So if he stays helping people, he'll be okay.
1: You know, Back then, it was all the skateboard shops had teams, and they had a skateboard circuit. It was called Another Roadside Attraction. As a matter of fact, the guy that was running it, this guy named Peter Kamen, is just coming out with a book right now um, that talks about the whole Colorado Skateboard Race Series. Oh, right. And what happened was um, at that race, some of the pros from California showed up, and there's uh, these two pros, Tommy Ryan and Bobby Piercy, that were like the blonde headed surfer guys <laughs> that were just fucking unbelievably fast on the skateboard. And I saw, I remember watching these guys go through the course and I saw, I see Bobby Piercy come flying down the course and at the bottom of the course, he threw it sideways and just did a standing slide to a stop. And I was like, Holy fucking shit. Just my, it just fucking blew my mind. It's like, I, I'm going to do that. Red. I want to be that red. And, uh, he wrote for the Sims team and, and for the rest of the summer, those guys came, there was a few more races and I was like, I want to be on the Sims team. I want to be on the Sims team. And I kept bugging and bugging him. Put me on the Sims team and I want to write for Sims. I want to write for Sims. And, you know, I bugged him so much. Finally, he threw me a couple of t-shirts and, and some stickers and a set of wheels that, all right. All right, George, you're on the team. When you're and saying he,
0: you're talking Tom Sims, I'm talking
1: Bobby Piercy,
0: Bobby Piercy, Bobby um, Piercy, who, who was yeah.
1: like, who was like one of the skateboard gods at the time. Top in the, tier. In the yeah. Mid seventies. Yeah. And, um, so after that, I was like, I'm sponsored by Sims. Now they gave me a Sims team t-shirt and it was like Dope. the coolest fucking thing ever. Dope. And so me and this other dude, uh, George Walker, who's a buddy of mine, both got sponsored by Sims. Yeah, it was it was badass. That's a fucking big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal for Colorado kids. And back then it was like there was no internet, there was no videos, it was skateboarder magazine. Yeah. And um, that's a, you know, for a kid in Boulder, all I ever saw was Pictures in skateboard magazine was like Laura Thornhill spinning three sixties, or you know Tom Inaway doing a grinder, uh, you know Lonnie Toft, Jay Adams, and you know and we're looking at these guys in in the magazines, and that was, you know, it wasn't real to us until I went to that contest and I saw these guys for real and live. Yeah, it fucking blew my mind, and it was like I'm going to be a pro. You know that this is what I'm going to do. And what age are spirit. you at that at that 12. time?
0: Twelve years old. Right. Twelve years old. So how long how long do you work on that for?
1: So that summer of twelve years old was like the turning point in my life. Um, I skated that summer and I I did really well. I met up with a guy, uh, one of my mentors. He was like one of my heroes. This guy named Dave Pernick. He was on the team with me, and he was like fifteen at the time. And when you're twelve, a fifteen year old is like is is a big kid, you know. Yeah. Yep. And um, he he and I skated and we trained. He was a ski racer, so he had. Um, he got super technical about it. We'd watch each other's runs and we'd set different kinds of courses and we'd, you know, we'd geek out with our setups and, and we wrote all the time, all the time. We both did great. He won. He was in, I was in the elementary school division and that summer I won the whole division. Um, took like, I think he won the junior high school division. He was fast enough to be a pro at the time. Damn. And, um, and I was right behind it, but I was, I was 12 years old. Yeah, I was barely even in puberty at that time. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Um, but I was still fast, but I just didn't have the strength to to really go full on into it. Yeah, so that summer, um, by the end of the summer, I was like, I was the cool kid in the neighborhood. I thought I was the cool kid in the neighborhood. Sure, sure, and, sure. And, um, you know, my brother, Chris, who's a year older than me, um, you all know who Chris is. Yeah. Um he uh, He didn't get sponsored because he like had some kind of responsibility and, and didn't show up for the for the tryouts. Didn't make the team. Um, was every bit as good as I was, but he just didn't have the opportunity. He didn't. He wasn't there in the right place at the right time, and I was. Right. And you know, by the end of the summer, my head got big, man. I was like, I was winning contests, and, and I thought I was the cool kid, and, and I thought Chris was was uh, fucking tagging along, and I had some resentments. And one night at the end of the summer, it was probably right at the beginning. It was like a week before school started, and I was going into eighth grade. Chris was going into ninth grade, and me and all my buddies were going to Eilish's. And uh, I was like, "Fuck, Chris! Um, I don't want him to go because I, you know, he's been tagging along all, all the time and shit. So, so let's ditch him. And we ditched him, and uh, <clears throat> we went to we went to Elitch's and. Uh, when we got home, my sister and my mom were there, and my sister said, "George, sit on the couch." Uh, she goes, "Chris um, went up went up Boulder Canyon and got in a car accident. He's in the hospital right now. They might have to amputate both his legs." And uh, it was uh, it was fucking brutal, man. I went down to the hospital, and there's Chris with two casts with cast on each leg. Um, totally knocked out on whatever painkillers. And you had these two casts and both of them were blood red from all the blood that had soaked through. And this is, this is like 70s, 76 or 77. I'm not sure which, but way before they, uh, would do any kind of bone slot splicing or screwing shit back together. they, They just like, you know, um, set, you know, set their le- set his legs as the best they could. Um, what happened is he got in a, he, uh, hooked up with some people and got in a car accident. Um, they rolled the Jeep and the roll bar. The story is the roll bar, of the Jeep went across his legs, right, oh. on, right on his tip fibs, crushed right across the, uh, growth line on one leg, but not the other. And, uh, so anyway, um, it was brutal. It was, you know, it was a big wake up call. And, uh, So he was in a wheelchair for the whole next year, the next summer I went and did the, the ARA, another roadside attraction skateboard series. Um, and I was 13 that next year. And, um, so I went and I did all the races as it was the, the age group was called junior high school. So it was 13 to 15 and we brought Chris was in a wheelchair and he was the kid in the wheelchair that was getting stickers from all the pros and, you know, everywhere, everything I did, Chris was always there. We brought him to everything, and um, you know, he was he was living vicariously through me. Um, but also, his stoke is what kept me skateboarding. Oh, that's you know, dope. Um, another thing that that summer when I was twelve years old was the I started getting stoned. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to that skateboard race, and then um, and I started smoking weed that same summer. Chris started smoking weed with me. Now, I shouldn't out him like this, but, uh, that's cool.
2: Sorry, Chris. <laughs> um, and, uh, that's then, early to be smoking I, weed, man. Well, like,
1: and I also got laid that first summer. So in, in 12 year old George's mind, Jesus Christ, 12 years old, 12 year old George's mind, drugs equals sex equals skateboarding. Wow. That's, those are the connections that I made. Wow. And it was, you know, skateboarding was friends and girls and, um, and everything. And that was well, yeah. you know, it was like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, sex, drugs, and skateboarding.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: For George. So that those are the connections that I made in my mind that traveled, you know, I dragged, I dragged that. And I had some other negative core beliefs that I dragged through my life also. Um that I'll talk about in a little while. But uh sure. But that next summer, um, we took we told Chris along with us and uh yeah. I and I fucking killed it. I yeah. I won yeah. the whole junior high skateboard, the whole division. I won the whole fucking thing, and you, were, and, and you
0: were a young kid in it. And I was you, thirteen. Yeah, yeah, it was,
1: yeah. The age group was thirteen to fifteen, and I was thirteen, and I won the whole fucking thing. And
2: uh, Damn, man,
1: yeah, it was awesome. It yeah, was, it was fucking killer. And yeah, uh, so the next year, some of my buddies were down on the mall, and they met some old some old dude came up and started talking to him and asked him if they knew anyone that's into skateboarding. And they go, "Yeah, man, our friend George skates all the time." And turns out this guy's name is Bill Reardon. Who was um, back in the '70s? He was a vice president of uh, NBC Sports World or oh, shit. NBC Sports World. Wow! He was also a skateboard promoter, and uh, he called me up and he goes, "Hey man, I want to watch you skate." So me and Pernak went and we set up some cones and I skated through the cones and did some slalom. He's like, "Wow, pretty cool, George." And a couple of weeks later, he called me up and I was this is this is the summer between eighth and ninth grade, so I was thirteen. Yeah. So he calls me up and goes, "Hey George, I really like watching you skate. Um, we're doing some promotional stuff in Caracas. I'll pay you five hundred bucks if you come down to the Caracas for a week and do some exhibitions with us. What do you say?"
2: Oh, fuck. And I'm like,
1: "I'm like, Mom, can I go to Caracas? <laughs> I don't even know where I don't even know where Caracas was. I don't know where it is. Uh, it's Venezuela." Now. Oh, Jesus. uh, A month later, I'm on a fucking flight with all of my heroes that I've been looking at in fucking Skateboarder magazine. I'm with them on a plane on my way to Caracas to do skateboard exhibitions.
0: I'm cutting in here with a quick fact check report because this claim sounded impossible to me. Bill Reardon, who died in 1991, was indeed a world-famous sports promoter who's mostly remembered for winner-takes-all big-money tennis matches. But in 1975, Bill Reardon signed Ty Page, one of the stars of the Mukaha Skateboard Team, which was assembled in the 70s to promote the invention of the kicktail and is widely held to be a contender with the Dogtown Team for the best skateboarding team ever assembled. Ty Page, or Mr. Incredible, as he was known, invented many of the fundamental freestyle skateboard tricks. And I think Ty was wrongfully represented in the Lords of Dogtown as one of those square lamos watching Jay Adams change skateboarding forever in the seminal contest scene. Ty Page was already making hundred grand a year and owning an oceanfront apartment in Alfa Romeo, Spider, by the time he was 19. He was doing skateboard commercials in the 70s for Wendy's and Sunny D. All this to say, Bill Reardon did put together a skateboard demo in Venezuela at exactly the time George says he went on it. I checked with some of the skaters who George remembers being on the trip, and one of them, Greg Ayers, vaguely remembers George but says he probably wouldn't have hung out with him much because George was so much younger. Greg also mentioned that he's never seen a photo from that trip. I've gone down many 70s skateboarding rabbit holes, including the 540-page book George mentions, which matches George's memory exactly. He got third in elementary men's when he was 12 and first overall in junior at age 13, beating guys like Steve Klassen and Andy Brewer. I think it's true that George went to Venezuela with his childhood skateboarding heroes and got 500 bucks from Bill Reardon. I think Bill convinced local kids to connect him with a local kid who rips. Boulder was home to a mining wheel company that struck gold with skateboard wheels. You might have heard of them, Kryptonics. And that roadside attraction event even attracted skateboarding superstars like Henry Hester and the great Jay Adams. Boulder was a legit hub of 70s skateboarding, and George was a young star competitor.
1: It just happened. And That's I made just it down there. and, and uh, Unreal. You know, it was – who I went with was Chris Chappett, um, Laura Thornhill, Ellen O'Neill, Lori Rary, Paul Hoffman, Greg Ayers, and um, a lot of these names are going to ring a lot with a lot of, other, with a lot of people. Yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, these are my fucking heroes. Yes. Yeah, so I went down there, and I, and I was just this – fucking 14 year old kid from boulder (laughs) um and the next youngest person there was like 18 so these guys are these are all big kids i'm just this little kid
0: yeah yeah and
1: and it was like i was like how do you get there like do they
0: send you a ticket and you just your parents drop you off at the at the denver airport and you just fucking
1: (laughs) kind kind of of, yeah it's kind of what my sister you you have a passport or anything i had to get a passport (laughs) Um, god uh, my sister flew for United Airlines. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so they said so they flew me to L.A. Yeah, my and my sister went to L.A. with me. I Cool. Met this guy's name was Jack, and he was like the chaperone or the sure, guy that's putting sure. it together. And yeah. So we got on we got on this plane, and I'm on this plane with uh with all these freaking crazy skaters from Cali. Yeah, and and I was just like a deer in the headlights the whole time. I was <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And um we we got to the airport in Caracas and. These guys all jumped on their skates and were skating through the airport. And there's like, <laughs> there was a bunch of kids waiting there behind the line. It was like we were fucking rock stars or something, waiting for us to show up. Wow, yeah, it was unbelievable. We were in the airport there. The cops grabbed us and pulled us all in. Apparently, someone had said something that someone was doing drugs on the plane or something. But they strip searched everyone, and I was just like, holy shit! It blew my mind. Yeah. Then they brought us straight to a limo took us to all these autograph signing parties and to these like elite clubs where they take us straight to the back room with drugs on the table. And, and at 14, I was just like, it was unbelievable. That's just, fucked up. Yeah, it was, it was fucked up. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't fucked up. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. um You know, and, but the drug, they'd offered us drugs, but Jack like put the kibosh on that, especially with me that they weren't bringing me anything. So Anyway, at that point in my life, I was like, "This is the life. I'm going to be a pro skater." Um, so yeah. Then the whole skateboard racing died. Skateboard contests died. All the parks closed, and skating went underground. Yeah. And so, you know, as far as as far as street skating or any kind of vert or anything like that, it was still a thing. But slalom skateboarding, which was the what I was first introduced to, and w- which is what I was good at. I skate vert and I do and I do other things, but that's what that was my first experience and that was my first real like passion in skating. Completely died. Yeah, um, there was no contest. I mean, there was a few contests here here and there, but but the sport died. And you know, over the next couple of years, it just all went underground. And um, uh, let's see, nineteen seventy nine in the back of I think it was seventy nine. Um, Chris was still. Chris was out of his wheelchair and um, we saw in the back of Skateboarder Magazine an ad, a little, a little tiny, you know, half a column <laughs> ad for Winterstick yeah. Snowboards.
0: Oh, sick. And we're like, let's fucking buy it. Chris is like, we're <laughs> buying it. What did you do with that 500 bucks? Like, do you come back with the 500 bucks and put it in a bank account or do you uh, just spend uh, it like uh, a 14 year old kid? I don't even. Remember. You give it to your parents?
1: Uh, no, I didn't give it to my I don't really remember yeah. what I did with money.
0: Yeah. money. Yeah.
1: But, um, it was a lot of money. That's a then. lot of
0: money. That's like twenty grand or something wow. for a kid today, or yeah. ten, five yeah. grand or something. Like yeah. it's, it's a lot of money.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I used it. I probably bought weed with it and skateboard.
0: You know, yeah, more skates and stuff. Unreal. <laughs> okay, sorry to throw you off there. It's all right, because yeah, so so, uh, so seventy nine. You see the winter stick. Yes, yeah, and- so
1: we bought a winter stick and. Uh, um, Chris, Chris was really the impetus to to me getting started in snowboarding. He was just so stoked. Chris Chris was always Chris had the stoke for skating and he came into it. You know, I was um I was an addict, dude, from, from age 12. You know, wow. I got I got stoned and it was like all my shit fell away. You know, um and uh that's what I did is I just wanted to smoke pot. You know, after mm-hmm. after Chris got in that accident, I really that's all I did was just every day I had to be stoned all the time just so I couldn't feel because, uh, you know, I, I, I I, I didn't even know why at the time I didn't even know what I was trying to, what I was running from, um, or what it was that I didn't want to feel. Um, but Chris, on the other hand, um, even though he broke both his legs, he eventually, they eventually healed. Um, he ended up with two fused ankles, one of his legs that where the, where it was broken across the growth line, um, is two inches shorter than the other leg. Oh wow. And, uh he had limited mobility, but he could fucking walk. Yeah. And um, you know, he started, he he tried to skate and stuff, but you need ankle, you need ankle uh range of motion to skate. Big You time. just do. Yeah. You know? And um he did uh he did gymnastics at school. He couldn't do floor X or anything like that, but the dude would could do a fucking VC and touch his knees to his nose no he probably still can't today i mean you just see the dude do a layback air on his snowboard it's fucking unbelievable yeah and, nice um, and he can still do it now he's 58 he'll he'll do it for you tomorrow
0: Oh,
2: uh, that's awesome
1: on, on a on a freaking little tiny bump on yeah Pop yeah it
2: and, and it's unreal i, I love it
1: I can't believe it but uh so chris was he was you know he was so stoked um he really kept me riding and when we saw that when we saw that fucking board um in the back of Skateboard Maxing, we bought one right away. And uh, I I bought it because I had a job. Um, I wore it, well, it was washing dishes or something. I had the money, so I bought it. Yeah. And um, I took it to school. And uh, I took it to school at Boulder High. And uh, people are like, oh, what, it, what the hell is that? And I hadn't even written. I had just picked it up. I think, I, I don't know why I had it at school. Like, I picked it up at the skateboard shop. I brought it to Boulder High and uh kevin saw it. kevin delaney saw it. he's like <laughs> holy shit george what the fuck is that and he's like let's go ride it and i'm like all right hell yeah so we so we go out by the football field right next to the bleachers um and there was like maybe you know a solid eight inches of snow on the ground on the, the little the grass next to the bleachers yep so we're talking probably 20 degree angle <laughs> Yeah. i mean steep
2: yeah right yeah yeah
1: and uh Kevin like Kevin goes okay well what are we doing I go well you just fucking you know I had these bungee cord for for binding, Kevin st- steps on it grabs it out of my hands, puts both feet in steps on it and fucking board shoots out underneath him flies down the hill hits a f- cement wall splits nose wide open, <laughs> oh, and uh, God. I'm like damn dude and and uh, so I took in I called Dimitri, and I'm like dude the, this board D de- I don't know what happened. You know, fuck he, and so I sent it back to him. And he's like, "Bro, you like what? Did you do? Hit a cement wall with his thing?" What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, man, I don't know. It just D-limbed and, and he replaced it for us. And what, uh,
0: what a bro! What yeah, a dude! Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: And I think it was, I was, I don't know if it was the first winter stick sold in Colorado. Who who knows? But yeah. it was definitely one of the first.
0: Is early, early, yeah, early, early, and then yeah.
1: Chris bought it, and we still have that board. It's at the that board itself is at the Colorado Snowboard Museum. Rad. Yeah. Rad. Um, and so Chris bought a swallowtail and, and then we were in business. We had two boards, me and Kevin, um, Dave Dowd, uh, our buddy, Scott Cyber. we'd go, we rode like local hills up here. We'd go up to NCAR, we'd go to Pinebrook Hills and just find the steepest thing that we could and ride it. Um, then we graduated to, uh, birth and pass where we would go up there and, and Loveland pass. And, um, you know, people don't understand that, that, uh, what a wiener stick was back then. It's a it's a board shaped like a surfboard with a fucking skeg on the bottom and a bungee <laughs> cord on top with surf channels and ptex and it, it was way technologically ahead of anything. Oh yeah, um, any any board, you know, and this was way before Burton boards or sims boards had hit our group our realm anyway. Yeah, um, and so it was you know, a hard pack or ice was like the fucking devil, <laughs> you know, it was not, we didn't even consider ever riding on anything except for powder. And yeah. you know, back in those days, we go up to, uh, um, up at birthed, uh, we ride off either, either side of the pass. We do hell South acre on one side, or I don't know what the run on the other side was, but, uh, you know, you put your feet under the, under the straps and it's a it's a lot like they do. I don't even know what they, what they call it now with, with the...
0: No boarding or pal surfing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but that's what we do, you know. So I'd stand on the board and it had a fucking leash that when you went off the board, the leash would pull um, would pull the pin out of the skeg and the skeg would pop down and the board would stop.
0: Oh my God, that's so, so rad.
1: <laughs> so it was that, like, if you, get, if you stood on the board and you made like seven or eight length turns yeah. before you ate shit, that was fucking unreal. You yeah. know, and you do a top to bottom um was like fucking epic you know and and um, and we did that up at like when we would ride Bursted we'd go down and if the if we weren't doing road runs where someone was driving Every car would stop and pick us up.
0: Oh, that's dope.
1: You know, we stick our thumbs out. The first car that came by, would be like, holy shit, what is that? Wow. <laughs> and we get in the car and we tell them, man, it's called, you know, it's it's called the fucking winter stick, man. We're winter sticking. Yeah. They're like, really? Yeah. Wow. That's the coolest fucking thing. And it wasn't even called snowboarding yet. Yeah. It was, that was like three years before anyone coined the name snowboard. That's fucking awesome. And, you know, we call it scurfing or winter sticking. Yeah. And that's what it was. It was so novel that every car, all the skiers, everyone wanted to know what it was. Yeah, it was fucking unreal.
0: Did you guys get pretty good doing those road shots?
1: No, no. I, you yeah, know, I look yeah. back on it now. I, I could, I still like the biggest thing I ever did was just stand on the fucking thing, <laughs> carve a few turns. You know, we started doing Bowl 90 um, a couple of years later. And, uh, you know, once we got Sims boards and once the whole evolution came to where we got uh, boards with uh, bindings and then high backs came out. And, you know, that's where for me, um, I, it was it was just fun, but like I said, I was an addict, man. I was I was I was busy getting high. Um, Chris was so fucking into it; he was calling Tom all the time, like we need to get a new board. Um, once we once we got Sims boards, um, the first boards we had had these like little cup bindings made out of uh, uh, nylon with Velcro, Velcro <laughs> toe strap, and a Velcro one that came over you know the top of your foot. Yeah, um, no high back. Yeah. No metal edges. Still yeah. had surf channels on it. And it was fucking unbelievable. It was, it was like a quantum leap in, in our ability. Now we could stay on the board and you know it still had a leash, but it was it was uh it, it was way better than the winter stick was as far as uh because the winter stick had no bindings. Right. If we had to put bindings on the winter stick, that would have been a different story. But uh, so we rode for a season with that, and then the next season, and I'm you know, I, I don't even know what years or uh, are correct, but I'm going to say it was like '83. We had cup bindings. '84 Sims put metal edges on it, and then like '85 or so, he put high backs on it. And yeah, you'll have to you'll have to check with Jeff Grell or look it up in the fucking history books.
0: Are you guys getting these boards? Are you paying for them? Yeah, we're paying for you're them. You're paying them. You're just buying them retail.
1: Chris was doing most of the calling, talking to Tom, and yeah, I talked to him a few times when I was. When I was still sponsored as a skater. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Chris was the stoke behind the whole s- snowboarding snowboard scene in yeah. Boulder. I yeah. mean, it was, he was running it. Dowd was into it. You know, Kevin got into it, but Chris was the one that just was like the leader of the pack getting us out there. It was unbelievable. And then I bailed. I fell in love, went crazy, got a job and didn't snowboard for a couple of years. And Chris moved up to Jackson became the first snowboard instructor at Jackson. Dowd moved to fucking Summit County. Kevin went to Telluride or Kevin was riding Eldora. um, And those guys got really fucking good. And I was still stuck in the powder days without riding high backs and with, you know, my skills were low. And one day those guys pulled me away from the pipe and, and, uh, Brought me up to Loveland Pass. And I had never done the road runs that they were doing on Loveland. We had always hiked out and hit the pow. And and Chris straps in his board and dropped into the trees. And watching him drop in and just unbelievably ripped through the trees blew my mind as much as watching Piercy do a sliding stop at the bottom of the slalom course. I was like, fucking A. Yeah. could not believe it. Yeah. And my skills were not even close to anything like that. Right. Uh, You know, I had a taste of it. I saw what these guys were doing. and They made me want to snowboard, but the drugs were still, you know, at that time I, I started getting into doing a lot of coke and living in Denver, getting caught up in the whole city scene. So right when I turned 21, I got two DUIs within two months, lost my license. You know, I had a job as a salesman selling door to door, and I couldn't do that anymore. I sold shoes in downtown Denver and did drugs. I was living over near Cramner Park in Denver and, and I was like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to snowboard. So I'm going to get a job, you know, those guys, because they were having so much fun doing it. You know, I was like, I want to do that. So I fucking hitchhiked, I left Denver. Uh, so Cramner Park is like third in Colorado in Denver. Um, I walked out to Colorado Boulevard, stuck my thumb out, hitchhiked to I-70, stood on I-70, hitchhiked up I-70 to Keystone Got a job um, and then saw for rent sign. I got a job and a place to live and hitchhiked to Boulder all same day. (laughs) All right. Back to to Denver. To to Denver, I mean. Wow. So So then I became – so then I was there. Chris gave me a board. He gave me a Sims 1500 that was retrofit with metal edges and high backs. um, And and I was good. So So I showed up at Keystone to work. And the only thing about Keystone is they didn't allow snowboards. I was like –
0: what? Yeah, <laughs> like um, and they said
1: not only that, but but they lie. You know, as I remember it, they told me, "Well, you we're going to hire you as a maintenance worker, but you can always change your job. You know, where you got you have to work forty hours a week, eight to five every day, uh, but you can still ride on the weekends." And so, uh so I showed up. I lasted like two days as a maintenance worker. I was like, "This is fucking bullshit." Um, <laughs> I can't even snowboard at the mountain on my brakes because they don't allow snowboarding at Keystone. This is like 86 or something, maybe 86, 87. Uh, but they did allow it at a basin Keystone owned a basin at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I last like two days, quit my job, took my pass. And this is, again, this is before technology caught up. You know, it was just a printed pass and I, I peeled up my pass and my pass was like number 603. And I changed it. I changed the six to an eight and I changed the three to an eight. So my pass became number 808. And um, in those days they would have a hot pass list and the ticket checkers would get 50 bucks if they found someone with a hot pass. Yeah. Um, so I still have my pass, but I changed the numbers on it. And so I used that pass the whole year. Oh, wow. And, and rode almost there. I got it I switched a job to waiting tables at night and um, I hooked up with, uh tele skier, a really good bump skier. And there was no snowboarders on the mountain that year. I, I mean, hardly any. So I rode with these guys and they fucking were, were riding poly every day, hitting the trees and just, they just beat the shit out of me the whole fucking year. Yeah. I was just chasing them and chasing them all year. Um, I snapped my board, broke the tail off of it. Chris gave me a 1600, which was a little bit longer. Yeah. And um, I rode that board. Um, and by the end of the year, in the slush bumps, though I was waiting for those guys. Oh, nice! I was waiting for the skiers. Nice, because um, I just like increased my skills. And, and you know, I rode a hundred days. I don't, I don't know if it's a hundred days, but every day that I could ride, you know, I'd wake up, I'd walk out on the porch if there was fresh snow. I would hitchhike up to the mountain. If it hadn't snowed, I'd go back to bed till noon and ride a half day. Yeah, um, which is you know that's standard for anyone that's a fucking <laughs> <snowmore> bum, right? <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so yeah, that's how I got into it, and, and uh, but you know I would ride with Dowd, and you know Dowd was uh, he was working at Copper, and um, I would with that pass they used to have a Ski the Summit week, which was one week every month any employee could ride any any area nice. in Summit County. So I could with my with my forged pass I could go to a Breck or Copper, Damn. and ride. And so I and so I would go ride with Dowd, and his his skills were. I mean, the dude is unreal, I mean unreal snowboarder and and uh it was everything I could do to keep up with the guy at the time and <laughs> um you know they were doing uh I don't know, I don't remember if it's the same year if they they were doing contests contest or anything like that, maybe it was the next season after that um but uh was Dowd riding
0: the hard boots yeah, i remember I remember seeing pictures of him with the soft boot and the hard boot <laughs>
1: eat, eat. well, yeah, so Dave rides regular. Um, so he wrote a hard boot on his left foot yeah. and a soft boot on his right foot yeah. and, and doubt, whatever dad was doing, I was doing the same fucking thing. Cause the guy was so good. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to do what you're doing because clearly it works for you. It's working. So he gave yeah. me his other boot, which was <laughs> way too big for me. <laughs> and I was, and I would write stiff boot on front, soft, you know, soft yeah. boot on back. And the, the, the idea behind it was that, Number one, the bindings were so shitty. There was no support. Totally, that uh, stiff boot on the front. You know, and it and it wasn't like a stiff ski boot. It was a it was a Dolomite winter mountaineering boot with right. half the tongue cut off, super chopped down, and super customized. Yep, to give us the support up front and the ankle, you know, the mobility and the power up front, and then the tweakability on your back foot so you can bone errors and stuff like that. Totally. So it, it was fucking killer. I rode like that for three years. The next year. Those guys were racing probably, I think that was like the Zele series. Okay. Or maybe it was the year before the Zaylay series. But I went amateur that year because it was my second year. So the first year I rode A-Basin all year. Then the second year they had a series, which was Copper Mountain. There was a race at Wolf Creek. There was a race at Purgatory. And then world championships were brick. Yeah. So I raced amateur. I was like, dude, I just started riding last year. You guys all got... Three years on me, I'm yep. going amateur. Yeah. And so, I cleaned up rice and amateur and everyone was pissed. they <laughs> so like, Papi, you should be pro. And so, I'm like, all right, I'll go fucking pro at the last race of the year. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to race pro at the last year. Well, that year, the last race of the year was World Championships, Breckenridge, which was one of their first ones. And I think it had to be 87. So, I went to Denver and I hooked up with this girl. We partied all night. and I left and hitchhiked up to the mountain. And it was Saturday morning, World Championships were Saturday. And I'm like, I can make it. I left at the break of dawn and I hitchhiked. And I was living in Dillon at the time. And I got dropped off at City Market in Dillon. And I hiked up the hill to my house to get my snowboard and get all my stuff. And then I was going to go to Breck for the race. And the next thing I knew, it was 6 p.m. And I slept all day and missed the World Championships. Wow. (laughs) I was like, wow. So I slept all night, woke up the next day and went to Breck. And I'm like, what did I miss? And it was a fucking bluebird day. It was beautiful. There was the pipe. So I'm like, oh, I'm just going to hike the pipe. So I started hiking the pipe and I ran into this. There was a dude taking pictures there. And he goes, yeah, my name is Guy Motil. I'm a photographer from Denver. This is Kevin Kinnear. We're going to start a magazine. Can we take your picture? And I'm like, oh, yeah, Okay. So I had an old, I had the 1600 that my brother had gave me and Tom was there. Tom Sims was there and there was a few other guys there, but most everyone else was like racing GS or the pipe was empty. I don't know why there wasn't a bunch of pros there or a bunch of people riding, but there was only a few people. And so those guys are like, yeah, George, you you know, do this jump and I'm hitting it. And I blast off this front side air and I land and snap my board right in front of Tom Sims. No way. And he's just like, damn. (laughs) He's like, here, George, ride my board. So he gave me Kidwell Roundtail to ride. wow. And uh, I was like, hell yeah. And I jumped on that. And um, those guys took my picture. Then the next year is when they came out with the first issue of Transworld Snowboard Magazine. Yeah. And I had three pictures in the Mac (laughs) on Tom Sims board. I was like, hell fucking yeah. Wow. (laughs) Um, And they did a little, you know, they had pictures of me in there, pictures of my brother and, uh, um, actually one of the pictures they, they gave Chris credit for, but Chris rides regular and I ride goofy. Um, <laughs> it was actually a picture of me. So I had three pictures in that mag.
0: That's amazing.
1: And, um, yeah, it was, it was fucking, and then all of a sudden I was somebody. And then the next year is when I, when I race amateur and that's what kind of got everyone under everyone's skin. They're like, dude, you're in the fucking magazine. You're racing. Amateur. Right. Right. And right. I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm, you know, I've never been in a contest.
2: Yeah. You know? I Yeah.
1: Like, so anyway, I raced amateur that whole year, and then at the end of the year, they had the uh, world championships, and Breck and I showed up at 88, I'm going to say, and I got eighth place Dope. on pipe. Uh, I don't even know who won, but, but it probably Craig Kelly won, or Kidwell, or Sean Palmer, or you know.
0: Lamar. Um, Lamar won the one year.
1: Yeah, Lamar could have won, and, and you know the, all the all those names I just mentioned were all in front of me, and I got eighth place. Dude, you know, I think it was like Dan Donnelly ahead of me, <laughs> uh maybe John Boyer. Wow, Ken Alkenbach or something. And I was eighth place. I yeah, was fucking pumped, man. Yeah, yeah. So the who's so, who of so snowboarding. I put together, and well, it, there, it was there was no who, and there was no snowboarding. This was it was such a new thing. Yeah, uh, but there was a magazine now, right, yep. and so. I took my eighth place and I took my uh, skills of being the youngest of 11 kids and always, you know, manipulating everyone. I took my sales skills from being a door to door salesman. And I said, okay, I'm going to leverage this. Um, and I'm going to get sponsored. So, uh, you know, and the only companies that were there at the time was Sims, Burton, K2, Barfoot, a company called Snowtech, uh, and, um, the last issue of snow, transworld snowboarding had this new company Kemper. And so I put together a little resume. I said, you know, I killed it. I was a national amateur champion. Um, yeah. and I got eighth in worlds as a pro and I sent my resume to every company. And then I started playing them all off on each other.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And, um, so I get a call back from this dude named Jamie Salter <laughs> <laughs> now you have yeah, offers
0: on the table though from so, burton from sims from everyone, barfoot from everyone's like yeah we'll sponsor you." Yeah, yeah, yeah sure we'll yeah. give you boards
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, you know here's yeah. a t-shirt yeah you know, and, yeah
1: and uh this dude jamie soldier goes what's it gonna take george i want you he goes you're eighth. you know you got eighth in the world and i want you and and jamie and i speak the same language we were both salesmen and and i was you know i ain't gonna lie i was working it for the best day. i was i was selling out yeah, I was like, I yeah. want to be a pro snowboarder.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Like,
1: I, I want to travel the world. I want to do this and make, make money. And I had no idea anything about Kemper except for this picture and the thing. And I knew that I loved Sims boards, uh, but I didn't know anything about Kemper. All I knew is this dude, Jamie, called me up and he was ready to talk business. <laughs> and he's like, what is it going to take? And I'm like, it's going to take. And I had talked to other people and I had all these ideas. And I'm like, I want match winnings. I want photo incentives. I want a season pass. I want you to pay all my travel expenses. I'm like, this is everything I want. So he's like, Papa's. He goes, okay, we're going to do this. And I made a deal with him. I don't know the specifics, but I do know he gave me 250 bucks a month. Yep. He paid my rent for the year. Wow. He gave me matched winnings. So every time I, everything I won, he would match. He gave me photo incentives, with that we explained earlier, um, and he covered my travel expenses. And then he said, okay, he goes, you know what, George, you better be fucking Wayne Gretzky. He goes, I'm putting all this money into you, you better be fucking Wayne Gretzky. You better take it all. And, and I'm like, you know, we spoke about fear earlier. I'm like, holy shit, you know, have I've oversold myself. I don't I don't know why, you know. I, I'm gonna do the best I can, Jamie. Sure. Yeah. You know, and he goes, All right. He goes, by the way, pack your shit. You're going to fucking Mount Hood in two weeks to Ride this summer, and then after Mount Hood, we're sending you to Craig Kelly's camp in uh, Whistler, and you're going to ride there too. Wow! So, uh so he sent me some boards: Camper Freestyle and and a Rampage, and I think in a I don't I don't know. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. Was it the Blacktop Camper, or was it the No? Yeah.
1: It was this is a, so this is the first year Camper, and so he sent me uh, the Camper Freestyle, which says which was like the
0: Lucky Charms one, the
1: Lucky Charms one,
0: exactly, yeah. yeah.
2: Wow. And
1: uh, super soft board, kind of good shape. They were made by Palais. Yep. Um, so I was at the Rebel Snowboard Camp. So Rebel Skates is a OG hardcore skate shop in in Portland. And they had a skateboard camp that summer. We stayed in an old Boy Scout cabin way down by uh, Rhododendron, And the High Cascade Ski Camp was a ski camp on the mountain. And we were like relegated to the bottom when we dug our own pipe and threw salt on it. And I skated every day or I snowboarded every day for like a straight month. And yeah. this was, I guess, I guess it was 88. I don't, I don't know. the year, sure. But, but yeah. anyway, uh, Sonny Miller, uh, old, uh, surf photographer, you know, Sonny Miller. Is, Absolutely. Came up there one day shooting pictures and it was me. Mike Estes was the other coach and there was some, uh, um, Kurt Heine was a coach. Sick. And, uh, I don't remember the other coaches. Um, I, you know what, that was the next year. Okay. So the, fir- yeah. the first yeah. year, it was me and I don't, I, I, Mike Estes was a coach the first year also. But anyway, so we're at Coaches Camp. We had, you know, and it was it was seat of the pants, um, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing like what it is these days. Sure. We go up there and just ride. And um, this was the year that Mike Jacoby invented the JTR Air. So back in the day, you could not do inverted airs, you had to touch your hand on the wall to, to make a, a legal air. Yeah. So every contest, it was all about hand plants. If, uh, you know, uh, guys like, uh, um, Jeff Davis could do his crippler and he would just like reach out and like barely touch the fucking wall before he <laughs> dropped just to make it, just to make it legal. Yeah. And, um uh, Mike Jacoby did the J air, which was like a five forty handplant, hand plant. And, um, I started doing J Terrors and it was like the coolest fucking thing. And, and I'm like, I, I got it dialed in and I'm like, well, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be some other uh, way to do this. What if I go in, what if I go in faky and do a J, a fakie J, no one's ever done that yet. Come right? on. And so God. so I drop in, I start doing this fucking fakie J Terrier and it turned out to be, um, so I started pulling it off. Um, and, we called it, uh, one of the kids at the camp was a straight edge kid. He goes, we'll call it the BFM bro. And, um, all right, we'll call it the BFM. It's not, he's not a J Terry. It's a BFM. And I go, well, what does it stand for? And we're like, I don't know. And, um, so, uh, so the, the people have heard, what, what that trick is named, um, but it really stands for nothing. Um, and, uh,
0: BFM. Like the guy yeah. just, he just picked it out he just of the, picked, out he of just the picked,
1: air. He just picked the name and I'm like, okay, that's just BFM. What are we going to call it? So I call it the Buttfuck Mama, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, dude, it's whatever. So And that's yeah, what it became. The BFM. And, <laughs> and the big fine move, call it whatever you want. Sure. Uh, but, sure. So it's a fakie j error, what which was really a skateboard move called an Elgarial, yeah. which is you drop in fakie um, and it's like a three sixty hand plant, and um, that's what it is. That's unfucking believable so, that you could do those. I did that. So you, I mean, you were the Wayne Gretzky of snowboarding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you no, that that that's, that that's a that's a pretty advanced trick for that that time, right? Like, because
1: so that so that was my secret trick. No one had seen it. I did it. You know, just the kids in the camp saw it. Yeah, and then I did another trick that Dowd invented, um, which is uh, they call it the mashed potato. Yeah, and. The reason I named it that, it's that it's actually Dave's trick. I gotta give Dave credit for it. Yeah, um, it's a um, a front side alley oop, and you grab the, the you grab slob with your front hand, and then you reach behind your back and grab the other.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: and do an alley oop on the backside wall, man. Yeah, um, Dave's trick, and then, but I was the first one. And I think Dave was doing it before I was, but I was the first one he took a picture of. So yeah, Miller came yeah, up there yeah. and he took a picture of me doing that trick. And, um, I named it the mashed potato because Pappas is potatoes in Spanish. Yeah. And I was all mashed, business, so I'm mashed potatoes. Dude, that's yeah. so sick. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> at, and so that camp ended in July or something. And, and Jamie, uh, flew me up to, uh, or to, I drove up to Vancouver or whatever. And he said, okay, okay, George, we're getting the whole camper teams up there. And I get there and Jamie shows up with David Kemper and they got these fucking sun ice, uh, <laughs> costumes, <laughs> uniform. I don't know what you want to call it, but just like yep. the, just this full on day glow, things. I can show you pictures of it. Oh yeah. Um, I've seen them.
2: <laughs> I've seen them.
1: And, and, and there's the camper team. It's all these people and, um, so he brings up we talked about this before when I was talking to you on the phone. You got Hetzel
0: um, there, you got the Bassett brother and sister, right? Tina yeah. and, and uh and Mikey. Who else is on that team? So
1: so Tina I had met at Worlds and Rad um, And um I was just I I just thought she was just smoking and, and I called her up when I got sponsored by Kemper, I called her up and I'm like Tina, because uh, Jamie was asking me who else do you know that that we could put on the team? We have to build a team. And um so I called Tina, and I'm like, you got you to gotta get on this team. What so, was she
0: riding before? Sims. She had a Sims. I remember she seeing- Sims,
1: She had a Sims board. So yeah. She was there. Yeah. And her little brother, Mikey, who's like 15. Yeah, yeah. And the Curtis brothers, Jeff and Joe Curtis- Oh, wow. Hetzel. Yeah. Noah Selaznick. Oh, wow. Shannon Melhues. God damn. And I'm forgetting much people. There was know. more than that. And so, so Jamie- yeah there was a lot more than that I that's can, a lot of people I, man I pull up the picture i can look yeah at it, cause it's, um, um, i've got it on my phone yeah uh brett johnson oh uh, brett johnson uh, yeah right. and uh um anyway so i'm looking at i'm looking at hetzel i'm looking at noah selasnick i <laughs> i'm like these guys are fucking great snowboarders yeah you know and and i i felt like um I, I had those set feelings that come from the kid that I didn't that I didn't stack up whatnot. and whatnot. So Jamie being Jamie Salzer comes in and he goes, Hey everyone, okay, we're having a, a team meeting here on the mountain and, and this guy over here, this is Pappas. Pappas he's team captain and uh, so you guys are all gonna do what he says. And I'm just like, oh no. You gotta be fucking kidding me, man! That's like the kiss of death that he did. And all these guys are just looking at me like, "Really, him? This guy?" Team, team captain. captain. Well, I, and yeah, Ketsel, yeah. Ketzel's like saluting me, going, <laughs> "El Capitan," and, and he just yeah fucking went with it. And um, so from that point, I, I was you know quote uh, right camper team captain. So I was the one that was responsible to to get the hotel, yeah, um, to make the reservations, to to herd the cats or whatever. And and I was like. Sure. I, I'm not. I just. I didn't sign up for this, but, but I, you know, it was. I took it, and and uh, also,
0: it's not a sport like that. That's the thing. It got really out of hand. Those uh, guys partied a lot.
1: Well, we we fucking partied that same year. Uh, yeah, uh, we're up there, at Craig Kelly's camp. I've I've got my couple tricks. I can do a backflip. I, I can ride. You know. But, yeah. But I was no Noah Selasnik. I was no Andy Hetzel. Right. Um. And I knew it. I looked at those guys and I go, these guys are fucking badass. So Jamie takes me aside and I'm like, Jamie, you got, you have some real talent on this team. And he's like, well, Papas, we're putting all our money in you. You're going to fucking win it all. And I'm like, dude, you know, probably these other guys are going to have a lot more success than I.
0: He doesn't know snowboarding. Right, he you know, you know, snowboarding. He doesn't know, snowboarding. you know, skating. The other thing that I'm just thinking right now is that you're the generation of slalom skater. So that's where your foundation comes from. Hetzel is a vert guy and Noah, and Noah's a vert guy who's also one of the most progressive street skaters ever. Yeah. So, like, they're the current skate guys. Here you are, knowing that you're a slalom guy on skateboarding. Yeah. The, which isn't going to hold any water with Hetzel. No, because they're like, "What? Yeah, they didn't even know yeah. what that was." Yeah, 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 yeah. And, Fuck. And, oh. and, but I was still all
1: about it. I'm, I mean, I'm, Good. I'm fucking yeah. proud of it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and so, so and
0: you've got switch fucking J tears, dude. Like that's actually solid. Like that's something solid going into. Well, you into know,
1: that. it's like Roach, Roach, and uh, Steve Graham, and they're like, "We don't do those flippy floppy tricks." <laughs> we got style, and I'm like, you know, so I, you know, I I could recognize that. Um, sure. But, uh, so anyway, the, the, uh, my point is that I went to Jamie and he's like, you better be fucking Wayne Gretzky Pappas. Yeah. We're putting all this into you. You still, you know, I don't give a fuck about all these other guys. I'm putting all my money into you. I'll give you 250 bucks a month. I'll yeah. Your and it was true. Yeah. It was. And, uh, and just because I had worked the deal, you know, and I, I was sitting there, what am I going to do? Walk away from it. Right. You know? So, uh, um. So I remember he, he brought, he hired a couple, uh, a couple photographers, this chick named Andrea and another photographer. And, uh, he was being Jamie Salter, just going big. He goes, all right, Pappas, here's the deal. Uh, I rented a helicopter for the day. Oh. We're going to go and we're going to jump off the biggest fucking
2: cliff. We can find. Oh.
1: Oh. Jesus. <laughs> Me and you is costing me 300 bucks an hour you and so you better fucking go up there you better find what you want in a hurry so we can do this because i don't want to spend much money you know fucking this is shit's expensive he gets on the helicopter i've never been on a helicopter before and, and we go out <laughs> oh. and like everyone else like Hetzel and no they're looking they're like really and I'm, I'm just like dude i'm fucking doing this you yeah know? yeah hell yeah and so they take me up in this helicopter and we fly out into the whatever those mountains are yeah side whistler i don't know yep and uh we're flying around. He's like, Pat, he goes, "What about that one, George?" And I'm like, "I, you know, I, I have no idea." I'm on. Like, <laughs> and and here's the thing, bro. In a helicopter above treeline, yeah, there is no perspective. Zero. I don't know how far away that hill is, how big the cornice is, what the drop, with the angle of the landing, what the condition of the snow. Nothing. Is. I, and, and I'm just this fucking. Crackhead from Denver that you know is just riding the wave, you know what I'm saying? And and, uh, so I'm like, okay, well, this one I guess looks good. He goes, all right, you know, here we go, and we land there. And uh, I look at it, I'm like, holy shit, it's like mandatory 20, it's nothing, yeah, nothing huge, yeah. But to, to me, looking at it, you know, when I looked at it, when I looked at it from the helicopter, it looked like it looked like pretty good air and it was still, you know, a 20 foot drop straight down drop is n- nothing to sneeze at for me at the time. I mean, guys, you know, do it fucking at eight years old now, but <laughs> at the time I'm looking at it and, uh, I was, you know, it could have been more than 20. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. The picture is still out there somewhere. Uh, so he goes, okay, we set it up where, where I was on the, and he wanted to have the help. Of course he had to have the helicopter in the background of the picture flying and so he had to have me, he took the photographer and put her out on a little ledge and where I couldn't see her. And then he went up in the helicopter and I'm sitting there, uh, sitting down on my board uh, alone um, with a snowball in my hand. And um, as, so I told, and and I think her name was Andrea, the photographer, I'm going to throw the snowball and I'll be three seconds behind the snowball. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, because that was the only way that we could time it. Yeah. So I'm standing there, and Jamie's up in the helicopter, and there's the helicopter, and I'm sitting there, and the photographer's down there, and, and I'm like, "All right." And I got the snowball in my hand. I'm sitting there, my fucking heart's going crazy, and, and uh, I'm like, "All right." Three seconds after I throw the snowball, um, my whole life can change. I can fucking fly off this thing. I wasn't even sure what the landing—if the landing was soft or if it was ice. Gonna fucking throw, break both my legs or whatever. And I was fucking no, panicked and Yeah. and pumped. So I throw the snowball one, two, three, and I jump off and fucking do like a slaw bear or something like that. And, uh, and just hit nice soft landing. Uh, and it was like fucking woo-hoo.
2: <laughs> Dude, it it's just like the
1: most exhilarating thing ever and nice. so i was like then they came down pick pick me up and the second time i hit it harder and further
0: yeah because now you know now you know.
1: know it was it was it was. that's tight. fucked
0: up i didn't know what was gonna happen i'm like are you gonna pearl are you gonna go yeah. over the nose and fucking just tomahawk no,
1: i mean i probably checked but uh yeah you know yep it was
2: you it was got cool. the shot you got the shot you got
1: the shot he used it in a foot in a po- on a poster dope and Ski Magazine printed it, a tiny picture of it in Ski Magazine. Come on. You know, um, and it was awesome. Was, yeah, I mean, no, that's super sick. Super stoked. Yeah, yeah. So.
0: That's that's incredible. You hadn't told me that before. That's no. that's that's a fun one.
1: Yeah, so so that was the first summer, and that was what happened with the, that, you know, that's how the Kemper team started. And then I was team captain, and we proceeded to fucking wreck every hotel room we stayed at and party our brains out and caused just wreaked havoc everywhere we went and it was a fucking blast. There, like you said, there wasn't pressure. He's was like, yeah, sure, we'd like to win. I felt pressure. You know, I didn't even really feel pressure that much. I was just, I was, I was in it for the fun and the travel and the, and the snowboarding and still having a great time with it. You know, I'm going to back up a little bit. After that camper team in Whistler, yep. that, that was actually Blackcomb. home, yeah. Um, then I went down to the SIA show in Long Beach. I'm at Long Beach and Jamie's, uh, you know, full on Jamie Salter. He's, he's there ready to sell Kemper snowboards. Um, He's got the whole thing put together. He's wearing a suit. Of course. And, (laughs) and he's all business. And I get there and I'm like his poster boy now. Yeah. So he's got me in the booth, you know, talking to people, the reps and stuff like that. And my buddies go like, Pappas, did you see the magazine? I'm like, what? You see Have You seen the magazine? I'm like, no. What's up? They're like, dude, you got to see it. So they fucking hand me the trans world snowboard magazine and I'm on the fucking cover.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was
1: like, I, I dude, I was like, Oh my fucking God. That's epic. And, and um, it was a cover from the world championships that I had just gotten a place in. Yeah. Um, and I was on the fucking cover of the magazine. That's I, and I was just like, That's I was awesome. like, Oh my fucking God. I can't believe it. they're like, dude, open up the magazine, <laughs> open it up to the back page. I'm like, well, what? Why? And so I open it up to the back page, and there's a fucking Kemper ad. and it fucking says Pappas in two inch fucking hot pink le- letters, <laughs> yeah. and it's got that Sunny Miller photo of me doing that mashed potato. The mashed potato yeah. up up, up and, it, head. and I was like, it, it. I was stunned and dumbfounded, and I was just like over uh, overwhelmed. And, um, suddenly I was just like, and everyone at the trade show was just like, Papa's fuck, you know? And, <laughs> and uh, I didn't know what I, it, it was just, it was like one of the most amazing feelings to have that happen. And, um, yeah, man, I was just super stoked. About
0: Dude, it. that's super amazing. Yeah. yeah. Talking to Kevin today, there was no buy-in Jamie couldn't buy a cover. The cover <laughs> came from good style epic layout of the shot you know like these guys were purists they weren't about the money at that point not even close they were like the best the best shit goes on the cover we don't care if they're in the mag or not so that that says a lot it says yeah, a lot
2: yeah
1: i um i i, I could believe it it was yeah. fucking it, it just dude that's me. so awesome yeah i was super stoked on it and so uh so that would that just like um it in the end you know it it uh i felt a lot of pressure from it because all of a sudden i was fucking somebody Yeah. you know i yep. was like it it was it was uh it blew my mind and so i went to the contest and i had a lot of people you know uh, uh, um, everyone has haters i don't know if i had people hating on me or anything but they're like dude you're not you know i, I felt like an imposter in a lot of ways. Like I didn't deserve to be able to have a full page ad in the back of the magazine and be on the cover, right? And be at the contest. I got eighth place at world, you know. Right, place right, right. Top five, you know. Sure, um, but I'm still rolling with it. Yeah, you're you top know?
0: ten, anyways. Whatever. <laughs> top, yeah,
1: <laughs> um, just just surely because I didn't fall right on Yeah. I run. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that was like September of '88, mm-hmm. and so. You know, so i was stoked on that jamie got us a, a apartment or got me an apartment in uh in silver and my buddy dave dowd uh was riding for crazy banana yeah at the time yeah and, but they harry harry guns is the guy that wrote uh, i know him Was crazy Banana? i don't yeah. really know harry yeah uh, but they had flown dave to to europe and oh sick um uh, yeah dave was like um Dave is a guy who does who deserves everything that I had. Dave deserved that and more. Because the guy was such an a fucking incredible snowboarder. I got you. Time. Um and uh he, you know, uh Crazy Banana wasn't coming through for him. Uh naked, didn't have Al didn't oh, have the yeah, money. Right. Al didn't have the money to to take care of Dave and send him because this is this next year skate snowboarding was was exponentially bigger than it was the previous year. Totally. You know, um it was a different scene. Yeah. Um and so anyway, I I said Dave, uh I talked to Jamie. I said you got to put Dave on your team. Um he's, you know, fucking this guy's fucking unreal. And uh Jamie's like, "Okay." And I, and he said, you know, me and Dave were roommates. He uh I got I didn't get Dave, but I helped him negotiate with Jamie just cuz I spoke Jamie's language and so you know I said I was like jamie, you you know it's worth your while to sponsor this guy. He's a fucking legend, and so Jamie went with it and uh so we got I got Dave on the team, and it was fucking awesome. yeah, we proceeded to you know that that was the my first trip to Europe was for World Cup. I qualified I went to uh they had the World Cup time trials in purgatory that year um and I qualified. Second in the country in the bumps, wow. I said moguls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Second in the country in moguls on a snowboard, <laughs> and so I qualified for the World Cup in the moguls, and so that put me. I didn't even qualify in the pipe. So we went to Europe. Jamie paid our trip to Europe, He bought our tickets. He came through um, for a week. Yeah, and then we called him up asking for money. And um, since the first the first race on the World Cup was in Lech. Um, the Alpensores in Austria, and uh, there was a no snow year, and so the, the bump contest was ridiculous, and uh, I didn't qualify the pipe. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And so Jamie sent us home, and he's like, "I'm not paying for anything. less on the trip. You guys are all going to come home." So it's <laughs> me, me and Dave, and uh, uh, a guy named Rich Varga. Um, I think. I think that's it. it Rich like,
0: from. I- uh, I salt, met him. Peak. yeah yeah from yeah. salt lake city yeah.
1: yeah yeah um so yeah uh so that was my first trip to europe and uh then so now i'm caught up then we proceeded to wreck every fucking hotel room we want it was Hedsel going crazy and noah and and uh um, uh just just the whole camper team
0: when you're on yeah. the road are you still are you taking a hiatus from from drugs at that point or are you kind of like s- sneaking off? and f-
1: So uh, I quit doing hard drugs during the snowboard season. Yeah. And I would just drink and smoke weed mm-hmm. with the rest of the mm-hmm.
2: crew.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know the scene. Yeah. And so- Well, the, also, the, you
0: I, were older, right? Like you were 27. These these guys are in their early 20s. Yeah.
1: yeah. Or, or still in their teens. Even so their it, teens. So at that right, time, right, yeah. Right. And I was like, I'm an old man. They're like, Hessel's calling me old man. And I'm like- <laughs> 26.
0: Like,
2: yeah,
1: you know, 20, yeah. You know. Yeah. 25 even. In 89 I was 25.
0: Yeah, okay. So yeah, that's you're um, not but old, still, but you're older than the yeah, the median still, age.
1: Right. Right. And and it's a different generation. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, yeah. it's it's the new kids coming up and for me it was a lot of fear and and, and I could tell that my skills, and you know, that these guys were exponentially getting better and better and better and I could see it all blowing up around me. It put a lot of fear in me. You yeah, know? then the end of the year came. Jamie's like, okay, Pappas, you're we're, you're off the team. You're not you're, the Gretzky. You're done. You, yeah, you didn't, you didn't fucking do it. You're not Wayne Gretzky. You didn't pull it off. Look at what Hetzel did great. No, did great. Look at fucking down And I'm like, Jamie, I'm trying to tell you, you know, and he's like, You're done. You're off the team. I go, okay. Well, here's my all my expenses. Here's my masterminds and my photo incentives. because uh, I'd had a few pictures here and there. And he's yeah. Like, He's like, I'm not paying none of that shit. Oh, fuck. So, um, I'm like, you know, and I've been borrowing money from my parents to travel. And, right, and, right. Because you've and got this
0: work. contract. You're like, hey, I'll pay you back when I get the money from, right. from this guy so my he's boss. Like,
1: he's like, fucking sue me, George. Sue me. Oh. And, uh, you know, he's pissed. He's like, look, look, you know how much money you fucking cost me? Look at all these hotel rooms. Look at everything, you know, and, and he's just laying it out. And he's, he's pissed off, and he fucking kicked me off the team, and he was just done with me. And, um, in, in, in no, in no, uh, nice way either.
0: Right. No, that and sucks.
1: So, uh, so I was like, fuck it, you know, and I went and, uh, got high, you know, that's the only, that's the only coping mechanism that I had. So I went, went back to fucking went to the city and did hard drugs all summer. And, wow. uh, um, well, that's not true. That's not true. I, uh, I um, and after, I, well, I was riding Copper Mountain one day. I was still, on, I was still riding camper, and I saw these old dudes riding these fucking Alpine boards and just ripping incredibly. I was like, holy shit. And I fucking chased them down. And it was this dude named, uh, um, Charlie, some German dude named Charlie and another dude, they're riding these Mistral boards. And, uh, I'm like, wow, can I ride one of those boards? And um, I think I was on Stiff Boost that day. And they're like, yeah. And I put on one of these boards, and it was fucking unbelievable. But It was the best Alpine board I'd ever ridden. It was just head and shoulders above Sims or um, Camper, for sure. Um, Unreal board. And I was like, wow, that board is awesome. And uh, so uh, then Jamie kicked me off the team. Then I coached snowboarding camp again that summer. And that, at that time it was Bob Gilly doing the, uh, um, USS United States snowboard training center. You yeah. USST. USS, USSTC. Yeah. And so that was, that was me and, and, uh, Kurt Heine and, and Mike Estes again. There you go. Second yeah. year. Yeah. And, um, so I went up there and I, I was like, uh, um, I I called Mistral and I'm like, look, well, I'm off camper team and I'm trying, you know, could you guys give me a board? And and this dude, Dennis Jensen, who was the national sales manager for Mistral, sent me this fucking 30-pound brick <laughs> of a Mistral freestyle board and a couple race boards. Yeah. And so I rode this thing, and it was the fucking heaviest, stiffest, just POS freestyle board i've ever ridden yeah and i wrote it all summer and i and i learned how to do a front i, I learned how to do a Palmer air which i could never do um and i got a picture that was freaking beautiful that it did a two-page spread in ism on a mistral board i got uh, i learned how to do an eggplant um and got printed in thrasher i had two or three pictures at full page in thrasher Damn. Um, and I think the only reason they printed it is cuz I was wearing a 11 Rockets t-shirt um Sick. doing a big backside air and uh, anyway so I got so I got some publicity um riding this board and I and I was all about their race boards but their their freestyle boards sucked um so I did the camp USSTC then I traveled down to California I think that the trade show was in San Diego that year so I show up at the trade show and Jamie Salter's there and he has Done with George Pappas. As a matter of fact, he made a T-shirt that said, it "Had a picture of me, uh, the Sonny Miller photo that was in the full page." He had it said, "Pappas, no place to land."
2: <laughs> like, he, like it's a hell? burn,
1: like it's a burn on me. So he made a bunch of them, and they're all wearing them around at this thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, 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 fuck you, Pappas. You're not going to get sponsored by anyone. And I'm like, and they gave me one. I'm like, this. Is it. I go, thanks. They gave you one, I'm even. Like, thanks, Jimmy. What the you fuck? Know? And, and snowboarding and fucking rock and roll. Any fucking press is good press. Yeah, you know, man. make me a yeah. bad boy. I yeah. don't care. Fuck, sure. that's going to pay off in the long run. Sure. So, and what
0: the hell? Kind of why bother? Like yeah. it, it's that's such a bizarre move to make.
1: Yeah, it was. Just, he's just like fuck you, Papas. Wow. And uh he's already fucked you over. Like it's you well, didn't do anything he, to he him. Honestly. I'll say something about Jamie Salter is he came through on everything he said he would come through for with me. Right. You know, even though his, his style is, you know, it is what Jamie Salter is. Jamie Salter. Yeah. Um, one thing about him is he told me everything he did for me, except for in the end, when he cut me and said, fuck you, sue me. Yeah. Um, he came through on everything. Yeah. 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 It would be great if Jamie Salter, uh, Came called me up tomorrow and said, "Hey, Pappas, you know here's your here's your match winnings. The dude's a fucking billionaire now. You know, that
0: would be sweet. make it right, that Jamie. Would be sweet. <laughs> yeah. Make it right. If you're listening to the show, <laughs> call me. I'll give you his number. <laughs> right. Make it right.
2: There you go.
1: Here's my two cents with Jamie, but uh, and
0: give give me one of those shirts. I want to know where to land, shirt I, man. I want I want a shirt too because I, I lost it.
1: So so anyway, um uh, I I uh I went to the trade show. Uh, I talked to Dennis Jensen, who who he was selling these boards, you know, um, trying to be Mistral and trying to break into the U.S. market with alpine boards wasn't happening for him. And so I wrote him a letter. I I said, the the guy that I met at Copper Mountain was was the owner of Mistral Snowboards. Oh, no way. His name is uh, Charlie Mesmer. And uh, so I wrote Charlie a letter and I said, dude, uh, I go, your boards, your alpine boards are the best I've ever ridden Unbelievable boards, but this is the U S and we need, uh, uh, everyone here rides freestyle. If you want, I could help you guys design a freestyle board. And, um, you know, be, you know, I would love to keep writing for you guys and, and, um, I'll, I'll help you design a board. And, uh, I really had no idea what was going to happen with that. I was just putting it out there and about, I guess it was probably October that same year. I got a call. Or yep. a letter or something from uh, from Dennis, and he said, "You know what?" He goes, uh, "He goes, yeah, they want to take you up on that board." Wow! So, as a matter of fact, we're flying you to, to Munich next week. Wow! But, no uh, way! Here's a check for five grand. No! And, oh my god! So we Lightning went, strikes twice. Like <laughs> what the fuck? That's amazing! So, not only that, but it's going to be a pro model. <gasps> and I was like, "No <laughs> fucking way! No <laughs> way!" So, so it happened. Yeah, they, they flew me to Munich. Um, and, and, um, and I designed a board, you know, I gave them my specs on a board, um, which aren't even anything close to what production was. Like we talked about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And, and I Yeah. Had,
0: talk about the board that you designed because it's, it's ahead of the time.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so this is, this is 1989, 90 season. Yeah. I believe. Or maybe it was 80, I don't know. Remember. sure it's it's uh, in
0: that think, time zone
1: yeah i think this i think this board is the 90 and then the purple one was the 91 so that makes sense so i saw craig kelly with that year was riding uh was riding burton he had switched over to burton but uh he was riding the mystery Air because they couldn't tell because of his contractual obligations and yeah no one knew what company it was until his contract ran out but yeah but anyway i i, I looked at his board and i i took the width of my foot straight across is how wide the board was. My back foot straight across is the width of the board. It's yeah. just more, which is wider than this one.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And I obviously was the man doing the BFM going, doing faking. and I've been riding backwards all year. So I was like, I'm going to do a hundred percent symmetrical board. Uh, that's this wide. And I wanted it to have a lot of side cut for the pipe. Um, so I took the side cut off Craig Kelly's board and I just measured that, you know, at the waist, how far it was. And I said, and I put that side cut. I had no idea about, you know, parabolic side cuts or anything. Like
0: Blended that. radius. Yeah. No, None no, of that.
1: I had no idea. Um, so they made me, you know, Charlie had a Charlie, uh, Charlie was a world champion windsurfer and, and Mr. All for anyone who doesn't know is, is the company in windsurfing. Um, and um, Charlie got into snowboarding and he was the snowboarding arm of Mistral and um, super talented alpine racer, unreal wind surfer. Um, same with Dennis Jensen, was a championship windsurfer. surfer. Um, and anyway, uh, his, Charlie's buddy, this guy, this Italian dude named Louis Holzinger, who I talked to earlier, yeah. shaped my board for me. They flew me to Munich um, and they had made my board to spec. And it was an unreal freestyle board. And um, uh, then this one that we're looking at right here is a uh, is the second prototype that they made. Um, but the, what they did is back in those days, there's no internet and there's, you know, phone calls to Europe were tough to do and it was real spotty talking and there's no texting or nothing like that. So just communicate with them. Um, I I was under the impression that they were going to do my pro model with the graphics I wanted was flat black with uh, my signature, the size of my signature on the back of the board, and a little M dot on front, which is the Mistral logo, and flat black. And then it's just a simple board like that.
0: Would have so, been for that for that time that would have just crushed it. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought so. I thought yeah, hell like, yeah.
1: And so then they send me this board that looks like a fucking tablecloth, an orange tablecloth with yeah with blue all over it, and they notched out the nose and tail. And I was like, "What the hell is this?"
0: Yeah, where and, did the notch idea come so from?
1: So I so I call Charlie and I'm like, "Charlie, what's up?" I thought I, I thought we were doing a blackboard. You know, you got my my signature is a fucking foot long on the tail of it. I just, <laughs> I man, this is it's too much, man. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, "Well, George, sorry, we've already first run's already done. We printed a thousand of them, or or however many. You know, that's this is how it is." We made a decision. It fits with the line of the board. We have to have consistency. We're not going to do
0: it. Across the side. graphics. Right, 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 right. Cause, yeah. Yeah, because this series has this and then right. has that.
1: So, and I'm like, what about the notches? And he's like, well, we thought that, you know, our marketing says blah, blah, blah. Boom, marketing. A, it's a done deal. Yeah. And I'm, I was like, fuck. So, so, that's how it became, how it looks like. Now, the, yep. the next year, they've, they've reduced it some. They turned it purple, which was a big, huge improvement Yep, over the orange. Yeah. But yeah, I mean I mean here I am picking apart my personal life. It's like, <laughs> come on, man.
0: Couple of sick shots on your board that come to mind. Russell Winfield shooting with Trevor Graves. Jimmy Hallopoff. Jimmy Halipoff. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. So
1: yeah. so anyway, I so I rode that whole year. They gave me this board with this this is a sticker on top of it. Yep. To do yep. a photo shoot over in uh somewhere in Europe to make their catalog with. Then I came back to the States and I had boards and I was for that season of 1990, I was team Mistral. There was no one else, hardly anyone else riding the boards. Yeah. They paid, they paid everything for
0: me. Did they, did they do the same thing that you had going on with, with Salter? Did you get a, yeah. a monthly and then your rent paid and all that stuff?
1: Uh, you know, I don't remember yeah, everything yeah, they gave yeah, me, yeah. but I, they took care of
0: me. Whatever you got, you were Whatever happy Whatever I wanted. Yeah, yeah, did. yeah.
1: I was their man and I was their only man.
0: Did they put pressure on you to, to compete or were you able to get away from the competing and just shoot photos?
1: So, no, it was all competing <sighs> for the year. So I traveled yep, around doing a yep. competition uh, and I had ridden a lot and I had one of the biggest compliments I ever got. Craig Kelly came, I told you this before we talked, he came up to me in mid-year that year and he's like, George, your writing has improved so much that, and you're doing great. And, wow. And I like to hear that coming from Craig Kelly really pumped me because, you know, in, in that moment, I felt like not an imposter. Mm. You know, I felt like I'd earned it to, to have props from a guy like that telling me, because Craig, he didn't lie. You know, I do is, you know, yeah. was like, he was like, yeah, I, I got to hand it to you, George. You're doing good. And I was like, fuck.
0: Dude, that, that's man. sick.
1: That awesome. So I, I rode the whole year on this board. And then at the end of the year, there was body glove contest at A-Basin, very last race of the year. Dennis Jensen comes up to me at the last race. and He goes, hey, George, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, what's up, Dennis? And he goes, well, Burton has doubled my salary. And as of today, I did whatever sale, national sales rep for burn, whatever the job was. Yeah. And you're on your own. And I was like... What do you mean you're on your own? Because like- uh, he's my only contact, man. Oh. So I was just like dumbfounded. I, you know, yeah. I was pissed and I had a brand new mistraw board, a brand new race board prototype for the next year. I was just like, man, I'm going to fucking win this contest just to show that. I look over and I see Dennis like egging on the other team, the Burton team. I'm like, the fucking Burton of all, of Burton? You went to, I was like, oh my fucking God. And I was just pissed, you yeah. know? And I was yeah. like, I'm going to fucking win this. I'm going to win this contest. It was the body glove. Um, and they had this format that was like four at a time. And and uh, it wasn't like, it wasn't a single elimination like they usually do in GS. But anyway, I took fourth place, which was my best ever uh, finish in a race. Sick. I wasn't a race. I was a freestyler. Yeah. And it was fucking unreal. I was super happy with that. And That's uh, dope. then, you know, uh, then they still sent me to Europe again. I coach camp in, uh, I coached a camp in Austria. Damn. coach another camp in Italy. Wow. Uh, they're still treating me right. And, um, at the same time in the summertime, I was still doing a lot of drugs, man. I was, you know, uh, but I come out of my drug haze and go coach camp for a month. And then, uh, as a matter of fact, I left camp early because I was dating this chick, and and I got all fucked up about her, and, and uh, um, left Europe early to come back and keep doing drugs. Wow! And then they told me at the end of the year, they said, "George, we're uh, um, we need some. We need a national sales manager. Uh, we need someone. Do you want the job? Damn!" And, and I'm like, "Damn! Are you fucking kidding me?" And 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 this is now Mistral was was set to be one of the big biggest players. Yeah. Dennis Jensen had set the company up really well. They pumped me. They got good publicity from me. They have a phenomenal line of boards, quality, all the right ingredients. And so they, So I'm like, hell yeah, I'll take it. And um, they made me the national sales manager. They made me the team manager. So I started getting all kinds of letters from kids wanting to be sponsored Rad. by Mistral. Uh, they're giving me like all the accounts I'm supposed to go and, and I, and, um, I fucking locked up. Oh, no. Uh, I could not put the pipe down and fucking do this. And, um, I traded the biggest opportunity of my life up to that point. I mean, the national sales manager for Mistral and, I mean, it was like it was the my dream job. I mean, I, it was I, other than pro snowboarder, it was the it was my step my step out of it. Yeah, and into into, um, and I fucking traded it all for a fucking crack pipe. Um, wow! And uh, not only that, but I single handedly was. More than likely the demise of uh Mistral snowboards in the United States. Right. Because they had no one to sell their boards and it was too late by the time they by the time it was clearly apparent that I was not doing it, it was too late. And that year was gone. Right. And I had three models, three models that year. Oh a wow. A fifty seven, a fifty, and a forty. And a forty, um, yeah. And I choked. And like, you know, Kevin came to me one day and said, He's like, dude, Kevin Delaney, he took me saying He's like, dude. People are fucking laughing at you, George. He's like, he's like, you got, he, he said those drugs are like your girlfriend and you devote every minute to her and nobody likes her. Everyone fucking hates her and people are fucking laughing at you. And, um, and all that did was, you know, it, 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 I was just like, that, I yeah, that's do it. And not it was,
0: very supportive.
1: No, well, Kevin kind of is, is one of the most positive people I know and he was one of the only friends. He was one, you know, it, it was, it, it was supportive of me because he's the only person that took me aside and cared enough to say, George, look, I got you're you. fucking choking, bro. Yeah. You're yeah, fucking choking. Yeah. He was, no one else was telling that. Everyone else was just like, Oh yeah. Fucking papas deserves that or whatever. And you know, he was a bro enough to come and tell me that, you know, dude, you're fucking blowing it. You're yeah. Fucking blowing it. Yeah. And I did. And, um, you know, and that was in 91, yeah. 91, 92 season. And, uh, by that next summer, I was putting a needle in my arm.
0: Wow. And,
1: uh, the first time I put a needle in my arm, I checked in myself into rehab and, uh, I got out of rehab, um, and it lasted like two weeks. But, you know, while I was in rehab, I realized, uh, that, um, you know, that this whole time I've been snowboarding that, uh. Um, all the fear and the imposter syndrome that I had and the feeling that I didn't deserve it um, was I, I brought it back to the first time I felt that and, and when that happened was when um, that day that I ditched my brother and went to Elitch's and uh, he got in that car accident I blamed myself and my brother and uh, because of that Um, I felt like I didn't deserve the success. I felt like, um, I, I felt like he did and, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I fucking sabotaged myself because it it wasn't me that was supposed to have the success. It wasn't me that was supposed to be going to all these places and, and having all this great stuff happen for me. At least that's how I felt. That was the lie that I was telling myself. And, uh, you know, it took me to go through rehab, um, when I was 30 years old in 92 to, to start putting that shit together, you know, and uh, and that's when I did. That's when I, I really realized that that's what I was doing with my snowboard career. And at that time, I, I still believe, I didn't believe that I was any good. I didn't believe that I deserved anything, that it was all Chris, you know, that deserved everything. And it took me going through life a lot more to really start putting more things together, which didn't happen until I put myself in prison. And, right and finally quit doing drugs for and, and got some recovery and some time away from enough to to uh get a little bit of emotional health and, and uh a little perspective on my whole life
0: seeing you here talking about it the depth of the emotion that you felt from that day without support right like internalizing and burying deep down while you're having the success with skateboarding that's some child star stuff right like 500 bucks and getting flown to south america and signing autographs and shit like you didn't have any support through that guilt and that pain that you felt through that time and and And
1: the shame that toxic shame of telling mm -hmm. myself that i'm a bad person right you know that be my core doesn't deserve this and is a bad person because of what I've done. Right. And blaming myself for it, you know, and that's the difference between shame and guilt is that shame says I'm a bad person. Yeah. Guilt says I've done something bad. And, and you know, add that to to being a 30-year-old with the emotional intelligence of a 12-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, because it, that's where I was stuck was that when I first time I got someone, that's where my emotional maturity ended. Right. So – yeah, it, it took me, you know. I still had a lot of guilt and shame because now I've got to deal with all the other things, all the r- havoc that I've wreaked. I didn't really see it at the time what I did with Mistral or uh, all the victims that I created. Right. I, I created victims that I'll never even know of. You know, all these kids yeah. that were trusting me, they're like Papa, you know, they see my picture and then have this inflated idea of whatever you know because it's, it's all an illusion you're right when right. you're looking right. when you're looking right. at the pictures or the right. things you know you see this pro at whatever it's an illusion you don't know the real person you yeah know? and craig kelly told me that one of the first people that said this is all just an illusion george Holy wow shit.
0: really yeah that's that's a he- that's a heavy topic but like my friend chris was the one who bought your pro model and i'm pretty sure we called it the jerry pappas jr because we couldn't <laughs> read the you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know where that came from, but right. but it's like, but we, yeah, you were larger than life to us. We weren't, I was never going to meet you. You know what right. I mean? Like, it yeah. was like, this is a guy from the magazine. Look at this board that he's designed. It rides really well. You know, like, yes, yeah, so we didn't know anything about you. Nothing. You know what I mean? So our expectations, like, or I can only speak for myself, my expectations were you design a good board and you had already done that. So you like transaction completed, you know what I mean? And so then we would watch the magazines and if you would have kept going in there and, and we probably would have followed you to the next thing, right? Like that's, I was surprised when I Googled your name. No, it came through my Facebook feed or something because the snowboard industry is fairly small. And when you went to jail the second time, it kind of made the feed, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But so when I called you, the first conversation we had, I wasn't sure if I was talking to you in jail because I'd read that you had a sentence for 13 years. Right. And well, that was that was your second time going to jail, right? The first time was, was check fraud or something.
1: Yeah, first time was in 2007 for check
0: fraud. Yeah. Did anything happen during that that put you on a different path or was that just... No.
1: No. After I went through... Went through rehab the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, then I met a girl. Um, we had a kid. I started a company. I went and um, went legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, but I still had a habit. You know, I still had. I still had all of the. All of the. I still had no recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I still. I still blame myself for my brother. Mm-hmm. I still um, now and now I had this ruined snowboard career and I'd be, uh, in my mind, I, and, and possibly in real life, I was the pariah of the snowboard industry because I, because of what I'd done, um, with, you know, by bailing out on, on the straw and, and, and so I was just a fucking, just did drugs cause it was my only coping skill that I had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, one, and I started when I had, a, when I had a kid, um, I started a family and I started doing hardwood floors, which is. You know, I spent my whole life finding the steepest hill and the gnarliest, most insane terrain to make. And then I traded that for having a family and doing wood floors where I'm trying to make it as flat and smooth as possible. <laughs> so it's kind of like the total yeah, yeah of yeah, snowboarding. yeah, yeah. You know, just fucking slaving away and crawling around on my hands and knees. And it was... Kind of like a, an ascetic type, you know, paying my dues and my karma in reverse is how I looked at it, you know. It's like self-immolation, yeah. you know. Yes, um, like I deserve, I deserve to be here doing this fucking slave work, but yeah. but you know, at the same time, I I had uh, come out of the drug world and I was legit. I you know, people knew me at the supermarket again and and uh, or not again, but. Uh, instead of being like, I I had been being a drug addict and, and, you know, I got into dealing and stuff like that, where I'm changing my cell number all the time. No one knows where I live and I'm hiding out. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I traded that for, because that's what I did from 92 till about 96 is I just started dealing drugs and I got heavy into the scene and, um, you know, I was just totally underground. And then when I started a family, um, like I said, i was i I became legit, yeah, and it felt good to see yeah. someone at city market and they're like, "Hey, George, you did a great job on our floor. Here's our neighbor's phone number right and um uh and that was awesome, you know and and my wife was in the business and she was doing the books, and um I went, you know I, I became a really good business in Durango, which i where I had moved to, and um then, um I started getting high again. And it all fell apart, um, and I got to the point where my wife left me. She got custody of the kid, and all the incentive I had was gone. Um, and I was I was just getting high and bouncing checks to support my own habit, and uh, um, and I couldn't support my habit and and take care of shit. So I ended up going to prison for two years. Uh, I got a three year sentence, then I got a three year community corrections halfway house sentence. And that didn't last. So I went to prison and I got out in 07. And um, uh, that's when I started skateboarding again. Rad. And I actually had started before that in like 02. Uh, I met, uh, uh, I was on a job site and I heard someone say, Hey, is Randy Smith here? And I'm like, is that, I go, Randy Smith? Is that Randy Smith, the skateboarder? And I hear from across the house, yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that Randy Smith is, was a skater from Dylan way back in the day in the ARA days. Um, and he was, he was one of the, he was the best skater out of Colorado. That was one of the pros that was competitive with all the other guys. And, um, through the internet starting to happen in the early 2000s, um, slalom skateboarding was making a comeback. And they had the geometry of the boards had gone light years. The The formulas of the wheels were super grippy. And the whole sport had changed, become way faster. And uh, um, so I started skateboarding again with, with Randy. And um, probably I'm looking at one of the best decisions of my life was um, there was the world quote world championships of slalom skateboarding in 2002 or something uh and i had told all my jobs um, i was still holding it together with my work this is before i got busted but um that i'm going to go to this race at the end of the year and um at the end of the summer it came down to the weekend i was going to go i had my best client said george we need you to stay and finish this floor. And I was like, I told you guys months ago I'm leaving. And they're like, look, if you don't do this floor, we're done with you. And so I went anyways. I went and I raised, you know, I went to the to the race and uh uh didn't even qualify, didn't even wasn't even top 64. Oh wow. Because uh, I didn't have the right equipment. I I just wasn't good enough. You know, these guys were really good. Uh, but I went. I went to the race and I skated all weekend. I started. I started poaching the runs. I, and I got on some good boards and I was like, I, I can fucking do this. And I came back and I lost my biggest client. I spun out. Lost. I owned two houses in Drango. I lost my houses. I lost my business. And my marriage fell apart. I got divorced. Lost. Oof. Not lost. Traded. Traded. Traded, traded right, it right. all for drugs. And the more, the worse it got. The more drugs I did, the more I wanted to numb myself. And that's how I ended up getting into prison. And mm-hmm. so when I got out of prison, Chris again had been sending me Concrete Wave magazines. Right, and I did I did a couple races before I went down. You know, I, I was still I was good. Um, I became homeless in Durango. I literally went from running the biggest wood flooring company in Durango to living down by the river, fighting the natives for a fucking camping spot. Oof. Like I, that, this, I did that. You know, and yeah. I, uh, a six-year-old son who who knows if he ever saw me like fucking on the side of the road fucking passed out by the railroad tracks or anything like that right but that's that's what i did with my life that's heavy uh, then i went to then i went to prison and i got out and um i started skating again uh in 2007 2008 i got uh third place at the world championships in Sweden. Damn. I got crowdfunded by the slalom skateboard community. And they sent me to Sweden. Oh, man. Traveled Europe for a month. Uh, got third at Worlds. 2009, I won the whole thing. I won the overall Shit. world championships of slalom skateboarding at age 43. That's amazing. Yeah, I was pretty stoked. I got to say that that's the, the only time in my life where – I 100% gave it my all and lived up to my whole potential, um, because I was so committed to it and I was doing something that I loved so much. That um, and, and I did it, you know, and and, um, it, and it was unbelievable.
0: That's big, you know? yeah. Like where you actually gave yourself the win. Like I I earned this,
1: right? And and I didn't have, you know, it, it wasn't like in snowboarding where I was just like. In snowboarding, I was just, you know, it, it, I was so fucked up about everything. Um, and I was, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't, I knew I could never be the best. I, it was clearly obvious that there is no fucking way. You guys are unbelievable. But <laughs> in Sloan, I've been doing this since I was fucking 12. Yeah. And I'd seen yeah. the best and, and I, it was a perfect storm for me. Um, I, you know, I, I knew that. Not only could I be the best, but I knew I was the best That's sick. at the time, and, and and there was no question in my mind that I wasn't going to win, and I did it, and and, and uh, I'm proud of that. That's super you know? sick, yeah. Um. So, uh, after that, after I won, I had big plans to, uh, to do the same thing with downhill skateboarding. I was going to win Mary Hill, which is the biggest race in the country. And, yeah. and, um, I started getting high again. I had, a, I had a girlfriend that, you know, was, um, she was an addict also. And we started getting high together and, and uh, you know, I'm not going to put any blame on her for anything. I'm responsible for every decision I make. And I, you know, I pulled her down with me in a lot of ways, but we got heavy into doing drugs and wound up. We went on a run and got clean in January of 2015. Within six months, I had my whole business back doing wood floors. I was making a thousand bucks a week. We had paid our rent in Boulder at a house. Uh, we had our family we had everything together. And then we started getting high again. Within three months, we were homeless and I blamed her. She blamed me and I wound up taking my car and drove it into traffic pole down the street at 60 miles an hour. I undid her seatbelt about a mile before I put my hand over it. And then about four blocks before I crashed the car, took my hand off. She put her seatbelt back on and I crashed into a traffic pole at about 60 miles an hour. And, uh, Woke up in the hospital with attempted murder charges. That's what put me in prison. I ended up with a 13 year sentence for it. She walked away from the accident unhurt. That's the that, you know that's the only saving grace of the whole thing. I got a 13 year sentence out of it, and I got out of prison seven months ago.
0: To get out after five years, something had to happen in there.
1: You know my only goal originally was to get out of prison as fast as I possibly could mm-hmm. and um you know, I even bonded out and I still got high. Uh, I hooked back up with her, wow, uh, no one knows this, wow, but uh I hooked back up with her when I was out on bond mm-hmm. uh, so now my family knows <laughs> to listen to this uh. And um, then we got high again. And my family pulled my bond and sent me back to jail. So I went back to prison. I went into prison on June 15th, 2016. And that's the last day that I was high. It's the last day I used tobacco. It's the last day that I'd put any drugs in my body except for caffeine.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Congrats on that, man!
1: Hey, thanks. Uh, And uh, you know, uh, my whole goal, like I said, was was to uh, was just to get out of prison as fast as I could. And I found some dudes that have been through the system, and they said, you know, do do this. You know, take every class you can, get into every program you can. Um, You know, my first thing was to try to get a smaller sentence because I was facing thirty eight years. And and, so I got into this, uh, um, jet program. it's a, like a therapeutic community program here in Boulder County jail. And, um, it was run by the, uh, Naropa, which is the Buddhist college, Buddhist university here in town. Um, it was run by Naropa graduates. And so it was a mindfulness based, uh, rehab. And they, we did, uh, um, a lot of meditation, um, uh, CBT classes, victim impact, anger management classes. And, um, you know, a, a, and I, I had a good friend that was like, he was trying to get a minimal sentence and like, he and I had a, had a competition to who could get the most classes, do the most extra credit, read the most books and, and, and do the, and do do the most. I wanted to do the most. Yeah. And somehow in that process, um I, became motivated to change. I went, you know, they, they say there are stages of change. And, and I went from like contemplating for like before I was just trying to get out. And then I'm like, well, you know, God, this feels good. And I was starting to, to connect the dots about stuff. You know, I started to look at my snowboard career and realize that, Hey, I, I did that because, you know, uh, because I, I, I didn't want to feel, you know, and, and I had, I had all these lies that I was telling myself, you know, it all started to become clear to me. And I had some really great mentors and some really great therapists at Boulder County Jail. Then I went to prison and um, and that all ended. And You know, the Colorado prison system at the time, I went to a private prison, which was all about the money. Uh, but I was still had people that told me that, that go to prison and do everything you can to get to Arrowhead to get into therapeutic community program there and then go to Pier one, which is a, uh, outside rehab program. That's your ticket to get out of prison the fastest way. And that was my whole, that was my whole idea. So, but in the process of doing that, I just, I, I kept doing the things, t- kept taking the actions to look at my life and to really, um, really start feeling my feelings and, and reading books. And at some point it wasn't me that did it you know and I'm not going to get all spiritual and higher power stuff on you but but the uh, the switch got went off and um, and I then I started wanting to change I realized how fucking miserable I was um, before and I started having a little bit more peace in my life you know I could I could be with myself by myself and not be miserable and, and not want something outside of you know outside to be happier and um you know, when I finally did make it to Arrowhead, I did this TC program. It was just the the most phenomenal, uh, the believe it or not, the most phenomenal five years of my life. Wow, with my prison experience, um, I just you know I met some of the best people, and 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 I found recovery, you know, um, and and uh, um, and I I was helped out by other people. That uh, really have I saw people that had what I wanted. Guys that had been locked up for you know, uh, one one buddy of mine was uh, locked up since he was nineteen for a double murder, and the dude is one of the most together, uh, emotionally intelligent people I've ever met in my life. And and um, you know these people have been through it, and I and I it's like I look at them I'm like I want what they got you know, this, this therapeutic community that I was in was a peer road community. And, uh, we, uh, it, it was all about, um, uh, it was all about the, you know, the, the term is being your brother's keeper. It was all about being your brother's keeper and helping other people through it. And I did a year of the project, 13 months of the program. I made it through, um, and then I became a mentor and I mentored people for another year. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I, I got in there and that's where I figured out, you know, that's where I looked at it and I figured out, man, you know, I have, uh, when I was 13 years old, when I was 12 years old and I told myself this lie that I was responsible for, for crippling my brother that I also told myself a lie that I don't deserve success and, and that I'm an imposter and that I'm not good enough. And, you know, and I, and I realized growing up the youngest of 11 kids that I, from the time I was a little kid that I competed for attention and I, and um, I got this, I told myself this lie that I'm unlovable, you know? And um, these are, these are terms, you know, everyone, these are universal things that we all tell ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, um, people have, it it changes a little bit. Circumstances are different in everyone's lives. And and a lot of people come out with, with ideas. I'm unlovable. uh, I'm broken. uh, I don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. And, um, so these lies I've been telling myself my whole life at, uh, I learned some skills on how to have awareness. Number one of my thoughts and my self-talk, um, to really like to listen, to listen to my self-talk and to be in touch with my feelings and to see how my thoughts and my feelings together will lead me to certain behaviors and, I, and I recognized how to stop my, you know, and I'm not perfect. Yeah, I'm not even very good at it. I don't think that, better than I was <laughs> yesterday, um, but I, I, I can recognize myself talking real time, and I can see these lies that I'm telling myself, and I have some skills on how to, uh, how to dispute this negative self-talk and saying that everything's horrible, terrible, or, right. you know, or, or I'm a piece of shit. And I, you know what? I'm not, I'm a human being. I'm going to make mistakes. Right. You know, I, I, you know, not being ashamed of all of my, you know, saying I'm a piece of shit. Well, no, I, I've done, I've done some fucking terrible thing. I've done some things that are bad, but you know what? I can't change that. All I can do is change my behavior in the future. Maybe I can influence someone else to change. And, and it's become clear to me that, that that's how it works. You know, not only did I have these guys in prison that helped me to change, and I have eternally grateful to those guys for doing that, but I've had people come up to me as they were on their way out of prison and say, "Pappas, you know, thank you. You know, because I help people, I've helped the light go off with other people, too. And that's phenomenal. So... Now that I'm out of prison, it's kind of, uh, I, I'm involved in 12 step programs and I'm involved in giving back and, and service and, you know, trying to stay humble and grateful.
0: And you got this house, man, from these circumstances, from, the, from this.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing the thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I got yeah. out, I got out seven and a half months ago. Yep. And, you know, in that time I've put my wood floor company back together. Um, I've, uh, I've stayed clean the whole time. Um,
0: Good for you, man.
1: Keep taking the actions and doing the thing. Um, not not all the time, man. I you know, I I have had days in the past couple of weeks where I couldn't even get out of bed. You know, I just think that you know, in prison, a lot of times uh, you, there's nothing expected of me. And I spent a lot of times where I just would sleep for fucking days and days on end. And mm. just, you know, get in this funk and this depression and. and and just and just let it happen, and especially you know I, a lot of people could relate because of COVID. We, we all got isolated, and, and we all spent a lot of time by ourselves. And and uh, I don't know everyone's story. I was fortunate enough to go back to prison. They let me out in Je- in February of 2020. I got out, and I got to that program, Pier One, that I was talking about before. Yeah, and I was there for two days. I, I was out after four years in prison. I got out. and did a perfect program. And I got to Pier 1, uh, which is like an 18-month rehab, which is I was all about. It It was more of the TC. It was more of the, you know, that that I love. I love the change, and I love the growth that I was doing. And after two days, they pulled me aside, and they said, Pappas, we hate to tell you, but your victim is at the sister facility next door, and there's conflict of interest, so you're going back to prison. Oh, wow. (laughs) Holy shit. So five minutes later, I'm fucking shackled. Sitting in the back of the dog kennel, on my way to Denver City Jail.
0: God damn!
1: And I got there, and the next day, COVID hit, and so I watched it on. Like it, it was so surreal to see it. Like you know, all when they when they regressed me, all I could do was laugh. And I was like, you know what? I I can choose, I can choose my actions, but I can't choose the consequence. And this is yep. this is a consequence of my action five years ago, four years ago. Yep, yep. And so yep. I have I have to take this. And, yeah. And, you know, I've already done this for four years. I'm I'm gonna be okay. I yep. make the best of this. So I was good with it, you know. I didn't have resentments towards the uh system or towards her. Uh,
0: yeah, good for you. Yeah, uh that's that's a tough moment.
1: Yeah, I had I had to laugh. Had yeah. To laugh. So I went so I went to Denver County and I sat in Denver County watching this whole fucking pandemic un- unfold over the TV. You know, one hour a day when they let me out of my cell, and the most amazing thing happened when I was in Denver County is I unblocked. I started writing about three years ago, and um, I want to write my life story, which is pretty eventful. It's pretty yeah, man, and I like it. You know, um, <laughs> sick, dude. So, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, uh, so I unblocked in prison, and and I was up. You know, I write all night, and I and I got some phenomenal writing done. And um, in the, I was in Denver County for like two months uh um and it was just it was fucking it was one of the best feelings to unblock and to really start writing it to and to create and to really get a lot of these feelings and a lot of these stories out of my head about my childhood and and different stuff and process it as i was writing it and, and um it was fucking amazing um and uh so it, about uh March 22nd of uh, 2020, they pulled me out and they brought me back to prison. They shackled me up and they brought me to Buena Vista, which is gladiator school. If if anyone knows the Colorado prison system, uh, beauty, beauty and Lyman and Sterling are like where the shit goes down. And I I came from camp cupcake at Arrowhead (laughs) minimum security, correctional facility, the TC program behind the walls at Beauty, and that's where they quarantined me. And then, they, then they the next day after they quarantined me at Beauty, um, they bring this fucking white dude in and stick him in my cell. And I'm like, "What happened to quarantine?" He's like, "Well, I'm quarantining too." And this, they stuck us both in there. And this guy was hacking and coughing on me for a week, um, but he, they did his his temperature never got over 101 when they tested us, and their threshold yeah. was 101 in order to be tested for COVID. So they tested me because my temperature went over 101, and I came back positive for COVID. Oh, fuck. uh, It was the first case of COVID in the Colorado prison system.
2: (laughs) So I became in base
1: zero. (laughs) There's my fucking dubious claim of honor. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah, it it was crazy. Yeah, uh, and this is at the time where it was still everyone was still terrified of it. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, it, it, people had like got their own corners. The whole world was unified. In, yep, like in that this is fucking a pandemic. This the is the big the pandemic. World is going to end. I remember it was fucking and, freaky, and I, dude. I had motherfucking serenos and and crips coming to my cell because they knew everyone knew I was the one. It was on the titler on the 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 DOC news page. We have a positive. Case of COVID at Buena Vista, and these guys were watching the the nursing staff come to my cell and the body condoms, and, them. and they knew it was me. <laughs> yeah. And these guys are coming to my cell, going, "Hey, motherfucker, you're not coming out of that cell. Where you know, don't even breathe out that cell. You're yeah. not coming out there. We don't even want to see you in the shower." Wow, and, and I was fucking scared. You know, I've been I've been in prison for five years, and, and uh, that was the scaredest that I've been ever in in prison because these guys were so scared. Yeah, yeah. virus. They sent me and quarantined me in the hole for another few weeks, and then they moved me to a different facility. So
0: solitary.
1: Yeah. Fuck me. Uh, It's not, you know, it's no big deal. It was fucking awesome. You could sit with yourself. I could sit. I could sit, and I could write. And I was good. I'm good. (sighs) You know? Wow. And and it was phenomenal. It was another year of, you know, of of being good. And that few months at Beauty is an experience that – that I get, I have the unique opportunity to have gone through that experience. Mm-hmm. Most people never will have that opportunity. Yeah. like I said, I was unblocked, and I uh, um, I did a lot of great writing in there too. And it's there's something to be said for uh, for going through that. It was you know it's changed me in a, in a good way um, forever. So I'm pretty stoked on. That. I think we
0: talked about this a little bit, and uh, I did really connect with you over the idea of childhood trauma and a spontaneous experience that there's some young version of you running the show that's scared and doesn't have all the information and you're making these knee-jerk decisions about your life from the point of view of of like for me it was like a three-year-old kid you know so there were some points in my life where i was i got a three-year-old mental block that is equivalent to a three-year-old child making the decision for this forty-eight-year-old man, I don't know. There, there, it, it took some pretty radical therapy for me to get to that point, but I had a spontaneous moment of remembering what it was like to be a three-year-old kid, and oh, and what cool. yeah, and That's cool. and I was able to see it from an outside perspective, and realize that that three-year-old kid didn't do anything wrong, and a lot of what you're talking about is in there. Yeah, that I'm lovable but it wasn't because my mom didn't love me that she was treating me the way she did. It was actually because she did and that I'd made that mistake and I'd brought it all the way to the present moment. And I had a choice now that I'd seen it and it, it hasn't changed back the love that I have for my, both my parents, but especially my mom. It's like all of a sudden I got that love from her too. Like I realized it was there that whole time and I'd just Mm -hmm. been, pretending like it wasn't happening.
1: Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. You know what, what I'm hearing you say also is that it's not even really cliches. That's the inner child and the inner child work that we have to do is, is I've still got this 12 year old kid inside me mm-hmm. that that's telling me these lies that, you know, like I was saying earlier that, that I don't deserve this and that i that I'm a terrible person for what I've done. Right. And for me to go back and, and uh, talk to that kid say you know what bro you know that's not how it is Mm -hmm. i love you and uh and it's not your fault Mm -hmm. you know and and then and to have to have like a conversation yeah thank
0: Um, you for carrying that heavy load like that's a lot for a 12 year old that's heavy that's heavy and thank you for you've kept me safe this whole time you've been working on it doing your best and right. i and I love you, and I appreciate you that for that, but I'm a forty eight year old man now i can I can take it from here right you just go be a kid or be yeah, twelve totally, years
1: totally. old, yeah, and for whatever reason, uh the universe works perfectly and and the perfect way for me to learn it was to go to prison mm-hmm. and to go through that and, and that that's what it took for me to learn, and that's what it took for me to begin to help other people and to begin to change and to begin to recover, you know rad it's a wild ride bro it's a wild ride you know
2: yeah
0: <laughs> you knocked this out of the park man <laughs> this is even way better than the first time we talked about this you blew my mind that time you just blew my mind 10 times more people are gonna love this dude right, you right you, you deserve absolutely everything if you ever ever have those dark days you got my number man i'm on that list Right. Give me a call. I'll remind you of all these it's fucking amazing things you've done in your life. When I hear about the skateboarding, when I hear about the snowboarding, I mean, I saw that slalom run that you took in when would that have been, twenty nineteen or twenty twenty or something? What's the one that's like a world record? Uh, that, run? Was 2007. that was two thousand seven. That yeah. was two thousand seven. I forget what what is the.
1: It's just slalom run. I don't. I don't <laughs> even want to pump myself on that, so I'm not going to. Okay. But what I will say. Yeah, yeah. What I will say is. That 2028 Summer Olympics are in LA, (laughs) (laughs) and wow! Mark my words: slalom and downhill skateboard racing in some form are going to be a part of that. Dope! And the U.S. as always, um, this sport and snowboarding. Started here in the U.S. Right here, yeah. Start here, Boulder, Colorado is an epicenter for growing some of the best snowboarders and the best skaters ever. Dope. As is Cali. You know, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. The bottom line is that skateboard racing will be in the Olympics, and I'm going to do everything in my power to to be a part of that and to help it happen. I have no idea what skateboard racing is going to look like or what the disciplines will be. Um, but I guarantee that I will, that I'm going to fit into it somehow and and that I'm just going to use my stoke and my energy to put towards that. Because, you know, like, like I said, when, when I did the world championships, um, that I gave it everything that I had. And, you know, something that I've learned is like I was talking about at the beginning of the interview, my, my higher power, the universe, the power of, uh, attraction or whatever. It gives us all whatever we focus on. I can focus on drugs and I can focus on resentment and I'm going to get resentment. I'm going to get negative things and I'm going to create my own fucking hell if that's what I focus on. Mm -hmm. And if I focus on gratuity and I focus on love and I focus on good times and friends and service and all these principles of family, of charity and love, then that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to manifest in my life, and that's what's going to manifest in the world. And um, I firmly believe that.
0: Hell yeah! So, fuck
1: that's, yeah! That's what I'm about, bro.
0: Dude, thanks for doing the show, George. You're the best.
1: <laughs> right on, bro. That's sick. Right on. That's so sick. Start of a good friendship, huh?
0: Hell yeah! All Hell right. yeah! Thanks, man.
1: Right on. I told my story last night. This morning till four a.m. I let out a lot, not close to it all, but a lot, emotionally draining and purifying, autophagy morning pages, funny that cleansing of the soul that is this writing, this outlet of telling and sharing and exposing to the light, that vampire, that soul sucking vampire dies in the light of exposure and transforms the light itself, love and light. I didn't talk much about her. She, I'm not going to say doesn't matter because of course she matters. And I'm not exposing her. The circumstance matters to there is the story in there. What happened? Who owns what in the specifics? And at the same time, that doesn't matter. Circumstances are neutral. And I chose to stick around. I chose to engage. I got a payoff for it. Always a payoff. Emotional intelligence 101, always a payoff. And I told the story, but I didn't own my emotions. I didn't own, how about I will, I will own my emotions of powerlessness and despair. And I will talk about after the crash, time traveling, karma of 40 years, half the pain, only half of what Chris was. Half of that moment, one leg crumpled, not two. And I wake up in the pain of life. This moment I can feel maybe half of that same experience that Chris went through waking up trapped in that car and the pain and the forever moment of pure now that I popped into after traveling through the murky opaqueness of nothingness. I will talk about that in the hospital and the trip to jail and the bitch. No, not her, me, the crying little bitch-ass little girl crying in that jail cell. Me, the despair, the experience of that. I need to clean that all up with Eric and connect the dots of everyday drugs to not feeling, and I've got to take responsibility. I deserve to die a horrible death in prison for what I've done in my life. I need to own that. But by grace, I'm here and out of prison and telling this story, and it is perfect. I need to express that and to own my shit. And I stop, and I stand up. I indulge in the illusion of thought, and storylines dissolve in ether. But now I sit, and the chain of ink comes out of my pen. A spider's web in reverse. The cobwebs come out of my brain in this chain, and a little clarity, a little space is made, and a little process and peace, or dare I say serenity, takes the place of those cobwebs that now form a time-traveling port of entry and land on this page so solidly and forever in this moment, here to be read, to time travel, into others' eternal illusion of thought, and maybe, just maybe, have a positive effect, always an effect, On this play this illusion we all call life
2: it's beautiful man (laughs) thanks
1: that was my journaling the next morning after we did the interview you know i was thinking about how i just glossed over the wreck it it, it was a hellish week before i crashed that car and um i could have walked away at any time i could have left and and i'm 100 responsible putting my self-worth in the hands of someone else. And when that became blatantly obvious, and that feeling of ultimate powerlessness and despair, I couldn't handle it. And, uh, you know, a couple other things happened. Maybe read the book. There's a lot to be said. You know, I, in the past five years, I've talked to a lot of people and and it's, yeah. it's, it's fucking sad, but it's true. I did, I did do that. I did that. And, yeah something uh changes in a person and something changed in me after trying to do that
0: yeah you would have had to do a lot of work to come to the point where you could even talk about it i imagine
1: uh just talking about it is like that vampire i said bring it into light it's fucking, like, it's an amazing thing and you know going to prison and going through this experience has been the most amazing fucking thing in my life you know it's, it's life is perfect and Karma gives me exactly what I need to work through my past and my shame and my guilt and forgive myself and be nice to myself. And it's, you know, for some people it takes less. For me, it took it takes what it takes. Yeah. Partially what I've learned is I told myself all these lies, myself that I didn't deserve anything. And I, I don't know how to put it in, in words. Should I, should I put him outside?
0: I could do it. All right. Come on, Rocky. You know? Yeah.
1: I really feel like I was sharing eternity looking back on it now with my brother, because I woke up in one second, I was aiming at that pole and, and I gunned it as hard as I could. In the next second, I was floating through this opaque turquoise something and then popped out into the most intense light and the most intense pain and every feeling off the chart. And in that moment, it was so surreal. I think I was sharing that with what Chris went through when he was in that car back when he was 13 years old, but you know, maybe it took me to, to gain that empathy to really, really put together some kind of idea of number one, the damage I've done in my life, the, the victims I've created and to give me a view of what it's like on the other side. But you know, I, a, a big part of me thinks, well, what's the person think that listens to this and like with this guy, yeah, well, this guy. Like, yeah. The- <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, but, yeah,
1: but I do. And I'm here for a higher purpose. And, you know, hopefully, maybe someone can gain something out of my life and my experience that's going to change the world. And if I can share my experience, strength, and hope, and, and uh, help others change the world, that's what it's all about. That
0: was the kind of unexpected turn that through developing yourself, you could actually offer something really tangible and really real to people, to the listeners of this show, to everybody, anyone that's going to read your book. Like you have the real lived experience of somebody that's taken it to the edge. And, And there's so many people out there that their lives are on some scale of that experience where they're unhappy with themselves. They don't think they deserve things, that they're not good enough. I mean, the fact that you've pulled through it with such a, clarity of purpose ah, bro, thanks, it's inspiring man. bro thanks,
1: man. i appreciate that you know one thing I've, i would like to say is that you know all, all the experiences of my life this trauma and the things i've done and things that have happened to me i did blame myself for and i didn't want to feel those feelings that's why i was using the drugs and i couldn't see it because i was so close to it and now that i could zoom out and look at it from ten thousand feet i understand and um you know, I was lying to myself the whole time. Now I can see, and now I have some skills, like I was saying, to feel my feelings and, and a support system.
0: Do you feel like you've got yeah. the support system you need?
1: I do, man. It's all, it, this life is all about action. You know, if I keep seeking it out and doing the right things, then um, everything's going to come to me. It's the power of attraction. I, it's like that rap I did when I got out of prison. Yeah. That's like my mantra. Yeah. I, I say that to myself in my head. I was at Trinidad and it was my fourth year anniversary of getting my bond pulled. And it was on that day I went to breakfast and I came back from breakfast and I sat down at my uh, desk in my cell and, and it just flowed out in about a half hour. Wow. And, um, you know, I tweaked it and fine tuned it a little bit, but yeah, but it's how I feel. And, and it, it kind of is pretty succinct on, uh,
0: let's hear it, uh, man.
1: So it's now six years, but yep. I'm going to say it like it happened that day. Cause it, the play on words with the four. So, So four years ago, I was locked up physically. Four years ago, I didn't know my identity. Four years ago, I was locked up mentally, didn't know who I was meant to be. Incredibly, I was locked up. And I began to be this new entity. Had to be, for my psychology was logically nowhere. Didn't care about anyone out there, just my own hair to save. Wasn't brave, a coward. No power inside, outside, all sour, dark tower. Now it is different four years today, mind play and I say it, my mind is better. I can think even rhyme unfettered. I watch my thoughts, feelings, and behavior in real time and it's so clear. I catch my thoughts and switch, pull my mind out of the ditch and I'm rich. I get better and better. I follow the letter with awareness and I speak less, less stress, ego less in my life. No longer as big a mess as four years ago when tears did flow until I let go of my big ego. Now life I embrace it, and I base it on love. I can't be above compassion. My thoughts, feelings, and actions are dictated not by fear and reactions, but love. My responses are stronger. The gap between circumstance and action gets longer and longer. Thoughts, feelings, behavior. I'm a responder. Time traveling, forever commanding the ever-expanding landing strip called now. So don't trip. I get better and let it rip. Cause ego has jumped ship and I let go and presto, the right action is so, so in the flow, and I just let it be so cause I know I ain't in control. Time slow, slow, mo ipso facto, no reaction, I ain't bitter. So I grow and grow, new neurotransmitters, super highways continue to grow and flow and grow. Four years ago, I was so low, can't grasp how low. I was living in the back of my Volvo, basing my self-worth on this outside shit show. Today I look back in my crack of whack of life whack, I was such a knack, couldn't seem to stack those green backs always getting jacked up at every trap shack off, cold facts, now my life is snapped back, I'm on track to keep my pack with no act, all facts I'm spitting out about, how humility and gratuity are paramount, my mind's full of love's pull and I can't bowl, shit you because I ain't fit to do this without you and I know love's about to explode through four years and four years for the breakthrough to know that love permeates throughout all life and I'm about to get out to life and find out about strife and I've got to pull out my toolbox, rife with ways to deal with this adversity life's about to hand me like candy to a baby. All the temptation of the big city's been waiting for me for four years, and oh yeah, I got fears about the day I get that gate behind me. Uh, I'm a ball of vulnerability, and that won't be no time to be front and see. Because even though it's up to me, ultimately, I got to pull out that toolbox and see that it's love and community supporting me. I can't do this shit alone. Can't you see? that i need my support system, coping skills and this new identity to handle this thing called life that's in front of me. So when you see me 4 years in the future, remember this word love and pay it forward. <laughs> if, if
0: if you could drop these mics, I, I would let you <laughs> drop them, buddy. I love you, George, man.
1: Thanks, Eric. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for doing this. It's hugely cathartic for me. Good. Yeah
0: me too homie effin rad shoutouts this week to george pappas jr since this interview george has remodeled the house he's in into a recovery home i mean it doesn't even look like the same place it's amazing george is running a sober living house out of his new space helping people in recovery by providing a safe space run by someone who knows how important that is a few weeks ago george beat joe mclaren the eight-time world slalom skateboarding champion and he qualified for the World Skate Games in Argentina at 57 years old, McLaren's only 29. He's been granted an early release from parole that's a pretty big deal, and probably most importantly, he's reconnecting with his son, Joey. A few days ago, he wrote me, quote, I wanna add some audio about my son, about how great I feel to be a father, and my shame and guilt about my lack of parenting and how that contributed to me spitting out, as well as to talk about how much he means to me, how he's back in my life now. I listen to the podcast through his ears and see my ego and pride, and I know that I must talk about our relationship." End quote. So we may add an update and tweak the episode to include some of George and Joey. For now, it's important for you listeners to know That George Pappas Jr. is doing awesome. If this episode spoke to you, please reach out. George is active on Facebook, and you can message him there. And I can get him a message if you want to send it through me. I'm sincerely thankful that George gave of himself so freely to the listeners of this show. As I've said many times, George's brother Chris Pappas was head coach at Wendell's the summer I went. George's mother, Charlene Pappas, and George's father, George Sr., deserve a huge mention here in the Thanks, as does George's childhood friend, Shane Enholm, who I recorded with earlier this week for the episode. Wise words, Shane. Thank you very much. And go check out Shane's band, Flower Leopards, if you're into punk rock, and pick up his book, Tattoo Machine Discourse, Volume 1, if that's your scene. Support rad people. This is the final episode of Season 7, Over the summer, I'll be working on making this thing a video podcast. There, I've said it out loud. If you've got feedback for the show, DM us on Instagram or message us on Facebook. If you're interested in supporting the show on a sponsorship level with your company, send an email to effenradpodcast at hotmail.com. And I've set the date of June 15th to have my ducks in a row for a fundraising raffle. So please stay tuned. The Effenrad Snowboard Podcast is presented by Vans and brought to you by SIA Productions.